So welcome to a very special episode of Media Roots Radio. This is our, now I believe our, only our second Halloween episode. Uh, I mean, we've done other episodes on Halloween, but this one is the, is probably only the second one we've done that's like properly Halloween themed. Uh, the previous one was with Eric Jackman, where we discussed the Phantasm uh, quadrilogy um, it's, I guess it could be technically called a quintilogy. Is that the right word for five? I'm, I'm not sure, but it's, Pentology, <laughs> it's, it's, so Phantasm actually had five movies in the franchise, but I only really count the first four because they were by Don Coscarelli, who if nobody's familiar with them, he's probably one of the more interesting horror directors out of the late seventies and eighties. Um, but anyways, I'm, I'm here with, a one of my favorite guests on Media Roots Radio uh, to talk about basically horror movies. Um, and it's it's something that, as far as this guest is concerned, I didn't even realize he was had such a high vocabulary of movies and not just that, but horror movies as well. Um, so it was quite a treat to um, have Gumby back on the podcast. So welcome, Gumby. Yeah, happy to be here. Um, and not to like butter you up too much but like i am i am like impressed by how pretty much every like horror movie or random movie i've thrown at you uh you know just like over dms like you you always know what it is you, you there's probably only like one movie i mentioned to you, you haven't seen so um so yeah i mean i'm excited to talk about uh we we kind of decided to focus on um two horror films that are I guess relatively obscure, but they're they've they're one of them in particular has kind of got a cult following, so it's not super obscure anymore. Um, and that film is The Crazies, and then the other one uh, you introduced me to I had never heard of before uh, called Death Dream uh, that came out in 1974, and um, it's a pretty interesting and innovative movie in terms of like what it's commenting on, uh, and. So we're going to focus on these two horror films that are in some ways like very political. They're probably, I don't know if I would say like they're most political movies out of the seventies, but they kind of fall more into the realm of the, I guess the politics that maybe are <laughs> that we, in, that we ascribe to Gumby, like more mm-hmm. those kind of, I mean, there's, you know, there's tons of uh, political horror and sci-fi movies i mean i guess planet of the apes soylent green uh there's all sorts of commentary of course throughout those movies there's even um god i was just going to mention another one that was oh yeah another one i don't know have you seen any of michael crichton's uh directed like feature movies gumby um did he direct the terminal man I don't he think he did. I don't think no. he did, yeah. His most famous movie that he directed um was Westworld. Like the Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay, yeah. yeah. I have uh I saw it um quite a while ago. But yeah. um yeah. I've never seen the, the new series they did actually. It is it, I mean it's a completely different animal. Like it's it's uh, trying really hard to be like, are they sentient? Are they AI? Like it's all about the robots, whereas like I feel like the original Westworld was almost, you know, people rightfully say, and Harlan Ellison did win a lawsuit against Cameron uh, on the original Terminator for stealing 
I can't remember the name of the um, short sci-fi story. I don't know if you know what I'm talking about, but the plot for the Terminator was he had to actually credit Harlan Ellison after a lawsuit settlement. Mm -hmm. And, but I mean, I kind of almost see Westworld as uh, equally as much of an inspiration for Terminator, especially um, the fucking, the guy who played in the King and I (laughs) I forget his name. Oh yeah. You'll Brenner Brenner playing basically like the Arnold Schwarzenegger, you know, killing machine role where he's like, you know, his face is getting, you know, peeled off throughout the movie and is like exposing his robot parts and things like that. So, yeah. Um, and the look, the look of the robots looks a lot like the, the Terminator it, for sure. It does. Yeah. Um, but the only reason I brought up Michael Crichton is because one of the political, for some reason, a political horror movie that like stood out to me a lot as a kid that I just probably caught on like date, like TNT or something when they would rerun all sorts of random horror movies. Um, was Coma with Michael Douglas. Have you seen that one? I have not seen that. No. So this one is interesting because Michael Crichton has unusual politics, I will say. At least his commentary in this one is is unique, uh, to say the least. I don't I, I wouldn't say I necessarily agree with it, but it basically is about um a, a sort of like secret ring of doctors inducing comas in people intentionally to like sell their organs on the black market. Um, and in the movie, there's like a speech basically by a doctor that is sort of like, and I think this is what Michael Crichton's like main politics were for why they made this movie, where it's like the doctor is basically saying like, we're God, we can do anything we want. Like nobody can stop us. Like we decide what's like real and what's not like sort of this idea that like the met, like, like doctors themselves are these almost like sociopathic, like, um, and they've, I, this theme has come up in other horror movies, like later, like that weird Alec Baldwin one that came out in the eighties. Can't remember it, um, what the title of it was, but I don't know if that's so in, in a way, I guess I only bring that up because the crazies has sort of a commentary on like the sort of, you know, the quarantine, I guess, um, merging between like military and medicine, it's a completely different type of commentary. Uh, and I don't know where Michael Crichton was really going with it or what his feelings were on doctors, but I mean, I feel like this, you know, post COVID era, we're sort of overdue for a, not just like a pandemic movie, but a movie that also, you know, sort of like the horrors or, you know, like draconian overreach (laughs) by, by governments and such. Um, well, yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, I mean, uh, I don't, yeah, Crichton, I'm not like super in depth familiar with, but the Terminal Man, I do. Rem- that was one I saw kind of as a kid and stuck with me a lot because it's kind of like a Dave McGowan program to kill sort of movie, you know. Uh-huh. And um, it definitely has that theme. I mean, Jurassic Park has that theme too of just the like the excesses of science and it does, uh, you know, that idea of playing God is, I I guess, yeah, for Crichton is like the, the ultimate, I don't know, sin of, of science, I guess. Yeah. And I'm trying to think of, I mean, I don't know if that, I mean, I'm sure that theme comes up later. I know that he, one of his last books, um, that he like claims he, like he was one of the earliest people I remember, like saying that he's been like canceled for his politics not using that word exactly, but he kind of was like claiming that 
uh, towards the end of his life. And it was, and I think it was because like his last two books were kind of like panned critically. Mm -hmm. Um, and his very last one, I believe was sort of like about the global warming. Like there's a global warming conspiracy to actually create real climate change just to have, like have like people, um, to like, you know, come in and like, um, like capture all these resources and then like all the stuff about how all these like climate change activists were plants that were actually like working for. Oh really? Yeah. Oh, that sounds pretty interesting. Yeah. The great, they were trying to do the great reset. Through, Some, uh... <laughs> something like that. Yeah. And it was yeah. like, it was trying to basically, and I don't, I, I maybe I'm actually making it sound better than it is, but it was definitely like a commentary on how, like his feelings on global warming on like, you know, mm-hmm. um, like a global conspiracy scale. Um, but, uh, I just noticed, um, on Twitter, uh, since we're going to talk about horror movies, I thought might as well start the conversation out with something a little less, um, you know, I guess a little more light, which is sort of these, uh, reboots that they did. And you, you just recently saw the reboot of Nightmare on Elm Street with, uh, Jack Earl Haley. Um, yeah. who I really only had know from the Watchmen uh, movie, but also I, he's also in um, a Doll Man. He plays the villain in Doll Man, which he actually is like pretty good in it. So he's I, I didn't realize he came from like early Full Moon movies. Um, so he he goes way back because he was a child actor. Yeah, that's he was right. In like um, the Bad News Bears, I think. Oh wow! Oh wow! Like, yeah, way back in the day. Yeah, he probably he probably had like a really good little kid face too for like, because he looks so fucking. I mean, he looks like. I, I'm not gonna say he, he's ugly. He looks. He just looks like evil. He's got like one of those like perfect like character actor faces. Yes. So I could see why they were like, oh, we gotta we gotta cast this guy as the new, Freddy Krueger. But, um, you you had some things to say about the. The plot of the movie, and this is spoilers for anybody, you know, if you don't want to get the remake of Nightmare on Elm Street spoiled, <laughs> fast forward yeah. a little bit. But Well, go- yeah. <laughs> well, I, yeah, I would start off by saying you should not have any concerns about having it spoiled because it's really bad. I mean, it's <laughs> – well, I mean, uh, so I had just watched – rewatched the um, original, which I hadn't seen in a, in a while, and, you know, it's still – I still love it a lot. I always love Wes Craven and – the original is um, fantastic, yeah. Yeah, yeah, and it still holds up really well. And I love a lot of the sequels to the original too. And New Nightmare is is awesome. Like uh, the Wes Craven meta stuff, I'm I'm always a fan of. Agreed. But yeah. yeah, so they did like it was that era where they were doing a lot of these reboots. And they were trying to kind of sell them back to teenagers at the time or whatever. I guess was the idea. I, I don't really know what the whole idea was. Just that they wanted to keep the IP, you know, in sure. uh, alive. Uh, but this one, um, well, it's really dour and really like gray, and everybody's just really sad. There's like no fun quality to it at all. Um, <laughs> and it was it's directed by a guy who never made a had never made a movie before. It, I think it's the guy who directed the. Um, uh, Smells like Teen Spirit music video. Interesting. And a bunch of other wow. uh, music videos in the 90s and stuff. So they were trying to get another Zack Snyder probably type figure. You would think in that, except the way the movie is directed is just so blandly done that you would never, I mean, unless I had looked that up, there's no way you would ever 
have guessed that the guy started in music videos. So it's like so, the opposite sort of aesthetic. So a movie where the where the killer kills you or stalks you in your dreams is is the main word that the first yeah. word that comes to mind for you is bland. That's interesting. Bland, dour. <laughs> yeah. The dreams are all like I mean, they just do some of that red lighting, like in the original, but other than, you know, there's a boiler room that is in the original. But the thing that stuck out, well, the other thing I'll say before getting to the thing you're bringing up is that Jackie Earl Haley, like you said, plays Freddy Krueger, and they redid the makeup completely. So instead of Robert England, where it's like a hook nose, you know, and like a chin, and he's got a full on face he's got like kind of a melted in face where he doesn't really have a nose which i guess they were trying to do like a more realistic um take on it like if you had really been burned alive mm -hmm. as he is in this movie as he was in the original like your nose cartilage would burn away and so you wouldn't have much of a nose you'd have kind of a melted face i guess is the idea but it doesn't look realistic i mean it still looks all rubber sinewy like the you know, original mass does. So it's not like it works in the sense that you're like, oh, that's more realistic looking. Yeah. And Jackie Haley does a really dumb voice with it too. It's just really not good. <laughs> but the thing you're bringing up is that, so um, the, I guess one kind of twist it puts on the original is that Freddy Krueger here is not only had not only been a child murderer but he was also a child molester sexual abuser um and so they find this out in the movie rooney mara is actually the lead like teenage girl in, in the heather langenkamp role oh fascinating yeah okay. um and she's not bad but she's like on a totally different wavelength than just the like you know bright and shiny actors they have in the other the other roles this must have been um, before the david fincher sort of it was blew yeah it up. yeah okay yeah so this yeah this would have been when nobody knew who she was um and um so anyway not so not only was he a child molester but they specifically allude to that the children made accusations against him and they had some marks on their bodies and they told their parents and they told them about these tunnels underneath the school where he would take them to. And so it's a very obvious, if you know, if you're familiar with the McMartin preschool scandal case uh, from the 80s, this will like immediately ring your alarm bells because it's very clearly alluding to it. Um, and that case for people who don't know was a similar thing in Manhattan Beach, California, which is a very rich area. And these kids had made, or I, I mean, there's lots of disputes along the way about what happened and what the chronology is. But basically a kid had made a, an allegation that they were being, they were being sexually abused at school. And then other kids made the allegations and there was a whole controversy about how much the kids may have been manipulated into saying it and how much they, you know, how much was just real and really happened. And they ended up doing a whole prosecution and, uh, they never convicted anybody for anything in the case. So it's sometimes seen as like the height of the satanic panic, child preschool sexual abuse, um, like freak out that happened. Or, you know, if you have a different point of view, then it's the height of them covering up this kind of stuff, like 
the same with Presidio, Michael Aquino. You know, it's like deep in the yeah. conspiracy lore stuff. Totally. But it's so obviously alluding to it because it's the whole idea is the kids came to the parents and then the parents, uh, in this case, you know, believed them like they did in McMartin. But then when they first bring this up to Rooney Mara or her friend or whatever, they're like, well, we would have said anything back then. You know, we were just kids. We we're having it planted in our head. So then for a while you think it's just, it was like a, a made up scenario and it didn't happen. And they, so the parents all got together back when the allegations were made, as we find out, they kill you know, uh, trap Freddy Krueger in a barn or something and burn him to death. And then, you know, he's coming back and haunting all the kids in their dreams. Um, but so for a while it plays with the idea of, well, maybe the parents all, you know, it was mob violence and they killed an innocent man. Then later Rooney Mara finds the like dungeon through a tunnel and underneath the school where um, Freddy Krueger, who had been like a gardener who played with the kids at school, um, you know, where he had like abused them and there were like photos of her and there's like weird drawings she had done on the wall and stuff. So it all turns out that it was real and, you know, he was really a, a child sexual abuser or whatever. So I don't know why they decided to inject something that was very specifically a McMartin preschool reference into the 2010 Nightmare on Elm Street reboot. But for some reason they did. And the one other thing I'll say is apparently the original idea for Wes Craven with Nightmare on Elm Street is is that uh, Freddie was going to be a child molester. And they, I guess, kind of, quote unquote, softened it to him being a child murderer. But you can still kind of see a lot of allusions in the original to that idea, like when um, Nancy Heather Langkamp's in the bathtub, you know, the famous scene and his, you know, uh, knife hand comes up, like reaching basically in her crotch area. Mm -hmm. And, you know, he's like, there's a scene where she's on the telephone in a dream. And he's like, I'm your boyfriend now, Nancy. Yeah, and the, the tongue. tongue comes out. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so it's clearly like playing with that, ide that idea without really like full on going there. And then this one does, and like once you get into that area, you can't really like make it also a fun movie because it's such a heavy, like depressing topic. So, and how young are the kids like, in this one? Do they look actually more high school age, or is it? No, are, okay. they look less like they're in high school than the original, I would say. So that's that's an interesting choice. Then, so they talk about that. Yeah, that's it's it's kind of fascinating, and it's also just. I find it frustrating as like I I watch probably too much like true crime stuff on mm -hmm. YouTube and you know I've seen like every episode of Forensic Files, so there was like an, actually a point where I was like like I know like I felt like I it clicked with me where I'm like I know now which Coen Brothers uh, like true crime stories they're referencing in Fargo, so uh -huh. like. Like I, I, this is like a theory I like legitimately believe now that they actually were inspired by two different Forensic Files episodes. I don't know if that's true or not, but when I see a lot of horror movies now, even when I saw Barbarian, which I, which I did like a lot, um, I felt like they were actually referencing this very specific, uh, true crime story. Um, mm -hmm. and I don't know, you've seen you've seen Barbarian, right? I still haven't. No. Oh, okay. Okay. I'm, so I I'm won't kind of behind on, uh, I won't say much year. more about it, but, um, I had a similar feeling while watching it where I was like, Oh, I know what, you know, not make, not as a crime, not a story as famous as McMartin, but it was obvious that 
there was sort of it was nested around this inspiration from like a very you know crazy true crime story and i guess it just bugs me because it's like first of all like i'd rather i mean obviously i'd rather see like an original creation that's not you know so heavily referencing like a it almost kind of reminds me of like the way that the x-files or other shows would sort of do things sometimes that were too ripped from the headlines like yeah. something that was like just in the news or a really big like sort of cultural touchstone moment or something um yeah law and order would always yeah, obviously yeah, do that exactly um, yeah to an absurd degree i mean i think that they even did it uh with like a rape comedian like a rape joke comedian <laughs> after like referencing either tosh.0 or somebody who had just done like a rape joke and somebody walked out of a real stand-up comedy show and then like in the Law and Order episode, it was like SVU, I think. The guy turned out to actually be like a real rapist, like was sort of like the twist at the end. Oh, yeah. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, no, it's like, it, to me, it's just really frustrating, especially, I mean, and then also what's also frustrating about what you're describing is, I mean, Freddie has such an iconic look. Not only is Jack, Jackie Earl Haley like too short, I think, to like properly portray you know, the, the stature that Freddy's supposed to have. But I mean, I mean, I, yeah, the part of the fun of the Freddy movies was that it was almost like, it almost had this like sci-fi fantasy element with it too, with, along with the horror, even the way that some of the, like, were there even any like kills in this Nightmare on Elm Street re- remake where you're like, oh, that's creative. Like the, like the scene with Johnny Depp, like getting sucked into the bed. And no, the first well, one. the problem is they just rip off most, like a lot of the original kills from the original of, uh, uh, sorry, in the remake, the kills from the original are just recreated badly with CGI and stuff. Oh, There's God. like one cool scene that I think is original to this where, Nancy's in a dream and she goes into her bedroom and it's snowing and that was had kind of a nice look and then there was one where she's like walking on a red carpet and it turns into like blood and then she's like sucked into the blood Mm -hmm. those were maybe the two moments but otherwise I mean it's pretty it's a pretty dire um affair that movie and I mean I would Oh yeah. I said I would be fine with like CGI if they did, you know, new stuff. Like I mean, I think Freddy versus Jason had a lot of CGI going on in the dream sequences, but it it, it felt yeah. it felt like they were trying to do new stuff to a certain extent. I mean, I'm with what based on what you're saying, I'm imagining, you know, the scene where she goes up on the ceiling like the first time Freddy kills, you know, it sounds like they redid that one. I'm imagining them doing like a CGI yeah. him coming through the wall effect yes exactly um, that's exactly what it is yeah uh but and it's and it's funny because those are some really great practical effects even for the time i mean that i feel like they probably did yeah. use like a rotating set or room for that you know that one scene where she's like crawling onto the ceiling um oh definitely yeah yeah totally the and blood I mean, pouring out of the bed and stuff yeah of <laughs> upside down set uh-huh um and just a little, there's a, I mean, just a reference in there for people who don't know. Johnny Depp is watching um, Evil Dead on the television, and it's sort of a, it's sort of like a return nod to them putting the Freddy Krueger claw in like the cabin in the basement in Evil Dead. And I think they kept like cross referencing back and forth. Like they think there's a Hills Have Eyes poster in Evil Dead 2, maybe at some point somewhere. Oh. Um, okay. Yeah. So, but Wes Craven, I mean, I feel like even some of his later movies, like, uh, 
like red eye i i thought was re- like very fun like <laughs> yeah i really I like that one. a lot um, um yeah west craven is one of those where you go back and look at you know where you can like dig into the catalog and i think there's still stuff to find like um shocker that's a that really interesting movie yeah it's a very bizarre movie and i mean it's definitely not for everybody's taste um but it's like a a serial killer who gets executed by electric chair and then he basically like becomes electricity or something becomes so like, like a tv signal almost yeah like, so he can like travel through i think he can travel through anything electric but yeah mostly the way that happens is that yeah he like comes into tv mm-hmm. stuff uh yeah so it's kind of like um stay tuned you know <laughs> yeah 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 different shows and it feels almost um, like a spiritual sequel or expansion on what he was like he wanted to do something like Nightmare on Elm Street and it didn't it didn't land as well. Like Yeah. That's definitely. what it felt like to me. Like and I don't know if he wrote it or conceptualized the story, but it, it definitely seems like an extension of like a similar theme. Like a like yeah. a supernatural um slasher movie. I think that I think Wes Craven always really was fascinated by the meta quality of film mm-hmm. because I mean Scream obviously is a prime example even though he didn't write it but Mm -hmm. you know it's all just calling attention to the slasher conventions while still being a slasher and even nightmare on elm street it almost like it's less about dreams per se than it's about that idea that like you can show something on film and then just like pull the rug out from under and remind the audience or like change the audience's perception. Of, exactly. Oh, you're yeah. watching something different than you think. Yeah. It's almost Even, like, yeah, no, it's like throwing out, it's like using the template of like, unlike what Nolan did in inception, it's almost like using that as a backbone to do like really interesting, just filmmaking experiments. In right. Way. Right. And I would say even, um, last house on the left, you know, his first one controversial, mm-hmm. um, remake of the Virgin spring. Um, Oh, I didn't realize it was a remake. Yeah. Well, kind of it's, it was like inspired by the Sigmar Bergman film, the, the Virgin spring. Okay. But basically it's, I mean, all that really means is just like, there's a rape and there's, you know, it's traumatic and then there's some revenge that happens. So it's not like a very, mm-hmm. you know, close remake, but, um, that that movie like one of the things that's really jarring about it is like some something really brutal will happen like the the rape scene in that movie is you know very uncomfortable and difficult to watch and then like he'll do this like bizarre comedy scenario like Laurel and Hardy type stuff with the cops and there's this like jaunty music and I always felt like he was trying to like do something that felt so real so intensely real and then just kind of like rub your nose in the idea of like, oh, well, this is, I can do whatever I want. This is, yeah, yeah. you know, and That's like the tagline for that movie was just keep uh, repeating yourself. It's only a movie. It's only a movie. It's only a movie. So I always feel like that's like the, that's my like mental um, mind palace for yeah. West Raven films is that they're all like trying to do that kind of thing. That's very interesting. Yeah. That's a, I, I'm trying to remember like what other, I mean, I've seen, um, the one with Bill Pullman, uh, the it's like um, the Serpent in the Rainbow. Oh uh, yeah, was yeah, one yeah. of the one. I remember I saw that when I was really young, and that really uh, like stuck with me. Um, but I can't remember what else he did throughout the eighties besides Shocker. And that yeah, one. he did um, Swamp Thing. Oh yeah, which um, 
for some reason. Yeah. Yeah, that seemed like kind of a four higher um like one of his yeah. four higher, you know, like they're like go in there and make swamp thing for us. I guess. Yeah, I don't know if he had some like uh affection for that or whatever. Mm-hmm. I don't know. But um he did the la- the Hills Have Eyes two, which is I'm I mean has to be his worst movie. It's really Oh, interesting. Bad. And he did that in the eighties? I think so. Oh wow! I like early eighties. I didn't know he did a sequel to that. Interesting. Yeah, it's. Uh, <laughs> I think it's most famous for there's a scene where a dog has a flashback, and it's a. <laughs> it just keeps recycling footage from the first movie to pad out. The wow. Time, so there's like all these flashbacks to the original <laughs> stuff. It's, That's really interesting. Yeah, I don't know what the circumstances behind that. But I'm sure it was like they wanted a sequel out and they'd pay him some money and you know, I don't know. It had to be something like that. Hold on. I'm looking, I'm just looking his filmography up to see what, what else he did. Cause that is weird that he, I guess he had a, he did have, I guess a, quite a few stinkers after. The yeah. He's got a few, deadly friend. I've never seen deadly blessing. I haven't seen the people Sorry. under the stairs. He made yeah, that yeah, too. That oh my God. Yeah. That one's pretty cool. And he made the, the Vampire in Brooklyn. I forgot right, about right. that. Yeah, the Eddie Murphy movie. Yes. So he actually was sort of in, like entering into that that strange sort of, you know, uh, like almost like black horror movie. Because uh, like people are under the stairs was sort of like that from what I remember. Yeah. Uh, it it had like the main character was like a like that his name was like Fool or something in it. Do you remember that? Not really. I, yeah, I I don't have a clear memory of it. Um, and Serpent in the Rainbow has the voodoo stuff, so there's you know. It's, yeah. Interesting. I wonder if he had anything to do with like getting Candyman production going, or if that's. I mean. I don't know. Yeah, that was um. A Clive Barker story. It was yeah, but there wasn't yeah. any. I didn't realize the original story he wrote has like none of the, aside from the fact that that Candyman was like a slave and was killed. None of the yeah. other like racial commentary that's in the movie was like in the story originally. Yeah. I heard that uh, Tony Todd actually came up with a lot of the backstory for the character. That, Who's Tony um, Todd? The actor who plays Candyman. Oh, oh, interesting. So I think he and, uh, um, the Virginia Madsen, is that her name? Who plays the girl in that movie? Like the director let them, come up with their own characters backstories or something uh, and they came up with this that whole romance and you know they had been in love and then he was you know yeah. killed stuff that that was all stuff they had created i mean i i, I know we we're planning on talking about Candyman, but i i still feel like that's aged the best out of some of those 90s horror films I oh mean, the, totally the score yeah. for it is incredible like that yeah the philip glass score yeah. is amazing just the politics, I mean, talking about political horror, I mean, the, the politics of it, I think, have held up, like, extremely oh, yeah. well. Absolutely. Um, You know, Cabrini Green, where they filmed it, and it's just in such disrepair and mm-hmm. has been torn down, I think, since then. And that's, oh, like, really? where, um, yeah, because that, that's all south side of Chicago, and that's, like, the kind of area where um, Barack Obama's building is uh, gentrifying a presidential library. Oh, wow. Yeah. Well, the, I um, think one of the commentaries that's held up the best for me in Candyman is like this white 
liberal academic mm. like sort of like anthropological curiosity about right black like black poverty or whatever like it's like a totally it, and that i i'd never really seen i don't i mean there's probably been other things that sort of touch on that but like you know the coming off of because bonfire the vanities is kind of almost like the opposite in a way it's like a commentary on like yeah like the conservative version of it yeah, yeah. and that didn't i mean that was not that long before so yeah i mean i think it, it's it's sort of an overlooked movie but um it's it's fantastic i mean it has a great gore too and yeah like, the gore is incredible tony todd is is amazing as as the candy man mm-hmm. and he's got such an awesome presence and yeah what you were saying about the that she wants to be able to just go down and like study yeah. these poor black people and their, you know, their folklore and then go back to the North side of Chicago and, you know, her comfortable apartment, you know, she's living with her professor or whatever and some high rise and yeah, it's really well done. Um, the guy who directed that Bernard Rose did a movie right before that called paper house. And it's not super political or anything. Uh, but that that's a really, really underrated movie that's more like a fantasy horror, um, almost kind of like sort of through a child's eyes where this child like draws a house and then can start like entering the house. And it's got a very cool look because the house looks like the drawing. So the physical building looks like, you know, all wonky with like a tiny little window and like uneven walls and stuff. And it's got a, yeah, just kind of the similar quality of like that kind of fantasy element to it that that is really cool yeah and the the remake of oh i, I wouldn't call it a remake of Candyman. um Mm-mm. more like a reboot was pretty underwhelming um yeah i liked it i think more than a lot of people did but it, it definitely had like probably more ideas than it could really handle is kind of how it yeah felt. Yeah, and I think I mean I liked aspects of it a lot. I think yeah. I, for some reason, and I, this also also a problem for me with Halloween Ends uh, was. Have you seen it? Halloween mm-hmm. Ends um, was. Yeah. I I don't. It's hard for me to. Um, the idea of like someone being possessed by, in the way because like the way yeah. the original movie did it, I felt like they sort of made it so you didn't really know. It, you know, it like was she was the was her face being possessed by Candyman or was he just appearing and like, yeah, you know, basically yeah. like framing her for all these horrible murders um, mm-hmm. as like a punishment or something. But like in this one, it was more like, yeah, it had a similar thing. It's like he's almost like inheriting the evil or like sort of channeling uh, the spirit of Candyman or the, you know, sort of the I guess the whatever it is the end i don't i didn't really know how to interpret it i mean it, yeah it kind of had the the ending sort of like tried to bring it together with that it was like there's new candy men in every generation yeah so it's this like legacy of which was like and yeah which which in a, if that was the theme of the movie i felt like that yeah like so what you said initially is is i agree with that they they were had they had <laughs> They put too much on their plate in terms of yeah. trying to put it all together. Um, and then the kills didn't really make as much sense to like, there's the one in the high school bathroom, which was mm-hmm. kind of a cool scene, but it like just didn't, it felt jarring where it didn't really feel like it fit with the rest of the movie so much. Mm-hmm. So it kind of felt like they had a movie, they had an idea and then they were like, Oh, we need to throw in a few more kills, you know, to keep people's attention or whatever. Yeah. Um, 
and I guess just before we move on to the two main movies we're going to talk about, uh, I mean, what do you think about all the, in terms of, I mean, Nightmare on Elm Street sounds pretty bad and I would imagine it didn't do very well either. They would have made another one by now, but like, what about these other sort of eighties horror, you know, franchise, especially the slasher ones being rebooted? Um, yeah. Um, like out of all of no, those, which I've, ones would you say are, are actually worth checking out? Um, well, I don't know. I mean, the, the Halloween reboots they've been doing re- that they just wrapped up the trilogy. I haven't been super on board with, um, mm-hmm. those, the, um, this is like the second reboot. The, cause they, cause Rob yeah, Zombie Rob already Zombie did ones. those. I kind of like more They're like Rob Zombie movies are always a little bit all over the place <laughs> yeah. with his direction, but they are kind of interesting. I mean, the second one, like really, as I recall, gets really into the, um, trauma thing, you know, that he was like made into a monster by a bad abuse. Yeah, abuse and yeah. stuff. Um, but I think it kind of—I don't know if it totally works, but it, it, it that movie definitely has some big defenders. Um, and I'm probably not—I would need to watch it again to even know if I would how much I would defend it. But have you seen um, the second one? Did he do? Yeah, yeah, the two Halloween ones. Yeah. Is is the second one like an original story, or is it a remake of the second Halloween movie? No, it's an original story. Okay. Interesting. Um, I probably want to check that one out more just to see. I mean, is it is it good? Let me see that one. Is... I remember liking it. To I remember having very like uh, up and down feelings about it, where it's like, yeah, really cool scene. This is really, and that's usually how I am with Rob Zombie, where uh-huh. I kind of appreciate that he's like going for it and he's doing. He always does. You feel like he's making sort of the movie he wants to make, um, but. I don't know that I'd be, I could totally defend every choice <laughs> that he makes. And it's been, I mean, I saw it like when in the theater when it came out, so I don't have yeah. fresh eyes on it. I just know that it's developed a little bit of a cult cinephile following. Interesting. Um, yeah. Because I feel like, you know, it's, it's just sort of a weird curse. He's ma- remaking John Carpenter movies, you know, sort of in, a, in the Hollywood system. His other previous movies were, lower budget movies and then i i kind of feel like yeah. he didn't he didn't do what they wanted him to do or he just didn't get it you know they didn't generate enough revenue and now he's kind of making a monsters <laughs> uh remake that looks yes. like it was shot like completely by himself and like a like a f- very that small movie crew is, so i watched that movie <laughs> and it is uh it's not good i mean i don't i would not call it good it's not funny really at all but it is one of the more bizarre like <laughs> just the fact that he he made it the way he shot it is i mean it's super colorful yeah which is kind of nice for a netflix movie because usually there oh it's netflix yeah oh shit so i think they must have yeah he must have been able to make it like extremely cheap and they were like okay you can do whatever you want you have final cut because mm-hmm. It's way too long. Uh, the guy playing uh, Herman Munster doesn't really do the voice right. He casts his wife. You know, he always casts his mm-hmm. wife in the movies. He loves his wife. And um, she's giving her usual kind of like all over performance. Um, and it's like it's really bizarre because they don't even get to being the Munsters until like the last quarter of the movie. 
the rest of it is them like meeting each other in Transylvania. It's like a uh, origin story. <laughs> hung- yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> which he shot in Hungary, and so Eddie Munster isn't even in it because they're not you know together yet. Uh, oh, shit. Yeah, it's a very bizarre movie. Very bizarre. Somebody, I think this was like a letterboxed review, but uh, somebody called it like a porn parody without the sex. <laughs> <laughs> and that is spot on for that movie. It, is it true or not? Because I saw a red letter media thing about it. Um, and I, I saw something else about it where it hadn't come out yet. So I don't know if they were able to judge this accurately, but it seemed almost like they were, he was going more for like Adam's family vibes rather than the Munsters, which was almost like the gag of it was they were like a normal family that just happened to be monsters, like, like sitcom, like totally like silly sitcom situations where they just acted like they were normal people. Yeah. It kind of, the first part of it has more of like, I don't know if it, it definitely doesn't feel like the Munsters for the first, like, like I said, three quarters because they're not really a family yet um it has more like a young frankenstein kind of vibe where it's like kind of playing on really old like gothic horror you know universal Uh monster movie kind of stuff like he's shooting in black and white or just has, has that well he apparently wanted to shoot it in black and white but they i guess they wouldn't let him so he instead shoots it in this like totally garish color yeah um but just the vibe, because he shot it, I think, in Hungary, and it's so that most of it's in this big castle. So there's like that kind of castle gothic quality mm-hmm. to it, and just like the way scenes go, it's kind of like scenes kind of go on a long time. So they have sort of a an old creaky haunted house kind of feel, but they're doing jokes, but the jokes aren't <laughs> very funny. I don't know. It's, I yeah, I wouldn't. I don't know. If you're curious about it, I would say check it out because it is, if you have a Netflix subscription, you can load it up and you'll get the idea pretty quick of at least what it is like. What was the deal with the, um, like the audio mix quality in it? Because the trailer had actual, like, seemed like room recordings of like Herman Munster, like almost like talking <laughs> and then like someone was mic'd while he was talking to them, but it was like coming from like a, his voice was coming from like a really hard to hear room mic with did they fix that in the... Uh, yeah, I don't remember the audio being a problem like that. Okay. I remember, yeah, the trailer did... I don't remember that specifically, <laughs> what you're saying, but I remember the trailer made it look like not even competently made. Yeah. And it... I mean, it's hard to say whether it's competent or not. It's like... I think it's what Rob Zombie wanted to do, but it's not like... By the normal standards of a movie, I don't know if you'd say it's like totally successful, but... Yeah, I don't think there's an audio issue like that. I feel Maybe like there's a lot it. of like funny sound effects that he throws in there, that kind of thing. Uh-huh. You know, it's that level of humor. It's like <laughs> boy yo yoing type <laughs> sound effects. Yeah, it almost seems like they gave him full editorial control of not just the the final cut of the actual thing, but the trailer too. Because like, yeah. why you would think that Netflix would just anyone in house just would be able to cut together like a better a trailer to at least make it seem better like you know yeah it was almost like they yeah <laughs> don't like lowering people's expectations mm-hmm. and then when you watch it you're like oh yeah i can hear it and it's in focus and, yeah. <laughs> oh man well like i guess let's um 
I was going to say maybe we should move on to the crazies first because of the audio mix. Um, uh, sure, yeah. Just because getting out of the way, the things that were that are bad um, about the so just first of all, this is a George Romero film uh, that he did after he had already made. Uh, I would say a couple of horror movies. One of them I never saw. Um, I, have you seen Season of the Witch? I've not seen it. Uh, no. Okay. Yeah, I guess that's one that I probably had just sort of stored away in my memory banks, but it came out in between Night of the Living Dead and The Crazies, which came out in 1973. And then he also did one that you've seen uh, that I, I think I tried watching on Amazon, and I just I, I think I might have fallen asleep to it, called The Amusement Park, uh, yeah. which, was a, which was actually, like, made for the, like, was it made for the Pennsylvania state government? about elder abuse is that yeah it was some kind of like i don't i don't know the exact commissioning board or whatever but yeah it was meant to be not exactly about elder abuse but like how we society takes the elderly for granted and doesn't treat them very nicely or include uh-huh. you know, not or isn't inclusive toward the elderly but it's not it, it it's not like a psa at all it's an hour long and it's like oh it's a full a hour fantasy uh surreal almost there are touches of horror in it thing about this guy where he's i guess it's sort of like a dream or a surreal reality where he's like this old guy and he goes to an amusement park and then there's just all these scenarios where like they're being treated really badly he and the other elderly people at the amusement park <laughs> So they'll like be on the bumper cars and then they'll like, I don't know, there's like a attendant like yelling at them for, uh, I don't know, driving too slowly or something like that. <laughs> they ride on the like roller coaster. Yeah, it's very strange. I mean, it's kind of fascinating if you're into Romero. Yeah. Um, And you can definitely see his style in there. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's definitely not like, really any other movie I know <laughs> know of. And it was like, he made it and then they, you know, got it and we're like, what are we going to do with this? <laughs> you know, this is <laughs> not going to work for anybody. So I think they just shelved it and then they, you know, Romero died, I don't know, five years ago or something like that. Mm-hmm. And they found it after his death and, you know, kind of restored it and uh, put it out there. Yeah. And it, and it was sort of like, uh, Sort of like this is was a lost Romero film. Like yeah. it just sort of. So I think I first saw it or heard of it just by randomly popped up on Amazon Prime one day, and I was like, "What? Like, what the hell is this?" Um, yeah, it's definitely not one to go in like expecting just a regular Romero film. It's it's definitely its own weird thing. Yeah, but if you're a Romero head, it, it, his style is so recognizable in it. I mean, yeah. From what I did see, there's a lot of like Dutch angles, like just weird camera movement stuff going on, like heightened, you know, sensory overload kind of stuff. Um, yeah, the acting style is yeah that same kind of heightened yeah level to it. So this this movie that we're talking about, um, the Crazies uh, from 1973, uh, it was written and directed by George Romero, uh, but apparently it was originally planned to be this like epic up uh, almost like the road like it was almost going to have like the the crazies was basically going to be what ended up being the crazies was going to be the first act 
of a three act story where basically by the third act it would be like the road um in, like where it's just like a post apocalyptic wasteland people have been living in this uh world that's been contaminated by a a biological weapon basically uh that was accidentally released by the military and uh it's about like people like banding together and surviving you know years into this situation after society falls apart uh and i think i don't know exactly what decision was made to just only isolate it to the th first act of this original story um apparently the original story is based on was called the mad people uh by paul mccullough and i don't I, I don't know if romero worked directly with this guy but at a certain point it was like the idea of just making a straight up uh almost like military taking control over a town horror film like thriller was decided on as being you know this would just make a good movie in and of itself um and you know like movies like outbreak with dustin hoffman mm -hmm. uh, have elements if you've seen if you haven't seen the crazies and have seen a movie like outbreak uh there's definitely a lot of similarities in it um you know some of the same political themes even appear in outbreak but it's done in a much more like you know generic uh sort of schmaltzy way this movie feels very much like uh, a George Romero film. I mean, it, it's yeah. it's got his style all over it, even in ways that are bad. And just getting this out of the way first, um, I I had the first time I had seen The Crazies was probably like after I had seen Dawn of the Dead. And Dawn of the Dead came out in 1978. And it kind of just, when I remember my initial impression of it was this feels sort of like a weaker Dawn of the Dead. It has some some cool stuff in it that, but it feels like Dawn of the Dead is just a sort of a, a, like his craftsmanship had improved and he sort of made better versions of a lot of the things happening in that movie. Um, so I had just watched it again recently uh, to prepare for this podcast. And um, it, a lot of it's, you know, way more resonant to me now than it was, you know, back then when I had watched it, I think it might have been like 17. Um, but what initially threw me off uh, trying to watch it, and I think I probably watched like the highest quality copy available. I believe it's a Blu-ray um, like re-release that came out a couple of years ago. Uh, is the audio mix is it's not just that it's bad or bad quality; it's that it's like so strange and unorthodox in the way that they mix and put voices into the movie that like. I was just sort of blown away by it for there were like long stretches of the movie, like good 20 minutes where I was like, I can't believe that this, like this is the final audio mix. Like it was, it was just sort of like, for example, the one thing that really stands out is a lot of the, the military officials are wearing these hazmat suits uh, that are all white with these, you know, scary looking black gas masks uh, that cover their whole face um, in the movie. And, probably on one level a smart strategy to just have a lot of non-actors or extras or even crew members filling in for you know those people since they're basically faceless but it also seems like they also use that as an opportunity to just do ADR for all of them um, like pretty much at every moment in the film and since they're supposed to be talking behind gas masks the ADR the decision was made to add like reverb to like not just reverb, but some sort of like muffled muffling, 
Like it's almost like someone has a hand, their hand over their mouth recording in an ADR booth and then they post process it through like cavern reverb. So it's like uh it's it's weird effect where you're hearing this muffled, very obvious ADR over all those guys. In addition to that, they add like reverb. And this is mostly during like outdoor scenes. So there's I mean, when you're outdoors, you know, you're never supposed to add reverb. You know, even really low budget movies know not to do that. Like at most you add a little slapback echo or something. But when you're outdoors, you know, reverb is not what you use. So it's very, it's just a very strange um, thing to to watch the movie and like hear how unorthodox the the audio mix is. Uh, I don't know, maybe George Romero. I don't, I didn't look at the credits, but I mean, I wouldn't be even be surprised if he like did it himself or something because it it just doesn't sound like any like like no traditional training went into the <laughs> the the style in which it was done but so getting that out of the way that's really like the only truly negative thing about the movie but it's also like fascinating um as someone who's a trained audio engineer it, it was really strange just to hear all these weird ways of inserting ADR um but the movie especially post covid i mean feels like more resonant than ever like i you know i'm everybody was talking about contagion when covid first happened but i feel like this movie might be like one of the more you know what we were i i think what i was initially afraid of happening after covid uh this movie sort of portrays that nightmare scenario kind of better and more brutally than i think any probably any other movie i've seen so i mean yeah. what were what were your impressions of it and have you seen it after COVID and, you know, had well, you seen it more than once or? Yeah. So this was the second time I watched it for the, po for this podcast. And the first time I watched it was literally like right at the very, very beginning of COVID. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. So, wow. but it was interesting how it plays differently even in that time frame, mm -hmm. where certain things that seemed, I don't know, just certain things stand out a lot more um watching it with you know the two and a half three years of covid we've had uh versus you know basically being i don't know a couple weeks into it i watched outbreak contagion and the crazies all like kind of around the same time right at the beginning of COVID. oh wow yeah <laughs> which yeah. yeah it was maybe not a good idea in some ways but you're brave i i mean i i think i was I don't even remember what I was watching back then. I think I like turned off of the TV for the most part because I was just so fucking yeah. terrified. Um, yeah, I think <laughs> I watched them like, I mean, Contagion and Outbreak, I watched like the very, very, very beginning of COVID. Like mm -hmm. when we had just gone into a lockdown, like maybe a couple days after that. <laughs> uh, and I think at that point, I still it still hadn't sunk in so much. But it is interesting because I remember when that happened, like Outbreak and Contagion were both on Netflix and they were at the top of the Netflix rankings because so many people were watching the iTunes uh, rentals and everything because everybody was you know watching them because it, we were kind of living through it. Um, but yeah, the crazies, uh, I, I think for sure, I mean, certain things kind of have happened, some haven't, it's not entirely the same situation we're dealing with but i mean i think what really sticks out is just the 
it's very realistic in a way in that it feels kind of like true to how I would expect that something like like a a, a really hastily put together quarantine would go mm-hmm. where there is both like kind of conspiratorial aspects to it. They're covering up the fact that um, basically an offensive bioweapon was on a plane and it crashed and it leaked into the water supply of a small town and it's driving people, uh, you know, to the, this murderous, uh, rage and, yeah. and also just straight up killing people. Um, so there are cover up aspects and that goes like to the people in Washington. Um, but then on the military who's kind of implementing it, you get both the very like cold sociopathic dealing with people, you know, they're literally like gunning people down at certain points mm-hmm. in the movie, but you also get kind of a window into it too, where they're just kind of like, they don't really have like a moral quandary about it so much. They're just kind of like, what the hell's going on? You know, they're just trying to keep, you yeah. know, some sense of like sanity in terms of how they're dealing with it. Mm-hmm. So I, I did feel like it was kind of realistic in the way that like these big, I don't know what I'm trying to say, but like a big conspiratorial sort of thing filters down to like a very ground level, like how humans implement it sort of, um, sort of level, if that makes sense. Because the military characters are really more interesting to me than the just regular civilian characters the movie follows. Oh, absolutely. I mean, Um, yeah. No, go ahead. Sorry. Oh yeah. No, I just, the, you know, the way they're kind of dealing with it, they are, they're, they have some knowledge, but they don't have full knowledge. And, um, you know, they have to make these choices about rounding everybody up and putting them in the, Mm -hmm. the high school, a gymnasium basically the entire town being quarantined there Absolutely. and then yeah it's um and the military um doctor that they fly in from fort detrick um, oh he actually gets flown in from fort detrick i must have missed that i think that's where it was well maybe he wasn't maybe he was he wanted to go to detrick because he felt like I, I I did I think I did lose but it's mentioned the right there yeah detrick's mentioned several times okay uh, where they're like um, talking about getting samples and like flying them back, but that would take too much time. So he's like, they're collecting samples and he's looking at them in a, a high school uh, science lab mm-hmm. <laughs> through a micro uh, microscope. Um, and he's supposed to be, you're talking about like the guy who's almost kind of portrayed as like the, the only guy on the military side who's like not, uh, completely on board or is like actually trying to help people or um he's a doctor i okay. guess dr watts yeah i'm looking at the credits or maybe he's the guy well, in dawn of the dead that's playing the talk show host right the guy with the beard yeah 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 it's like one of the uh, only george romero actors that's like reappeared in his movies and i wonder if he's like friends with them or something i mean he's good he's like one of the uh his i mean he was good in this yeah he has kind of like a he's sort of pompous in this one and like (laughs) kind of trying to get his way. But, um, but yeah, I mean the, the way it develops is pretty fascinating. This idea of like implementing martial law in the confines of a small town. I mean, there's Mm -hmm. scenes of them. I mean, you could say it's over the top. I don't know. I mean, maybe, you know, whether this would happen or not, but they're like going door to door and like yanking kids out of, 
bed and pointing guns and that scene is amazing faces and stuff yeah it's pretty intense i mean i was really impressed by that that opening i mean though i'd say the opening of the movie is it, it it definitely loses i don't know if you agree with me on this but just i think it the the first half of it is very strong the the pace of it it yeah. keeps the momentum going very well and then it does peter out a little bit you know it definitely has a, a kind of a weak third act in some sense i mean even though it has some great like you know action stuff going on um yeah. it kind of falls apart a little bit and it, i think it is because they focus you're not really as interested in the i mean i wasn't i wasn't as interested in these no. human characters um hardly at all but yeah they they really make you focus on them and but i think what you touched on like there have been probably plenty of movies if you really think about it that have shown martial law happening in a small town i mean even close encounters of the third kind has an element Mm -hmm. of that that was the only one that came to mind but i'm sure there's like many others um you know where it's like oh there's something secret happening here we have to you know, at the very least, like a lot of movies have that premise, like the military mm-hmm. has to pretend, you know, co- cover something up or even E.T. got a little bit of that going on. Um, but this movie does something different than that, where they showed that, but they also show uh, sort of a more larger, like you said, a conspiracy that sort of gets almost like triggered by some kind of like automatic process or of some kind, like it seems so calculated in the sense that even though a lot of these people like, you know, it seems chaotic and sort of disorganized. It it's, it's made apparent that this is some kind of like machinery that's been activated as right, a response right. to like, you know, they're, it's almost like they're following like a book or some kind of like um, script of their, you know, that the military has about what, how they're supposed to respond. Totally. And that, I think that to me is one of the more horrifying and well-executed aspects of this movie because, I mean, it doesn't have to be a biological weapon that would cause a response like that. I mean, exactly. it, yeah. it could be, you could actually make, you could use this same premise again in another type of horror or thriller movie. And it can honestly even be more ambiguous about what is actually happening. And I think that, you know, that could even be like a, a, a well, not necessarily like a remake of the crazies, but like some other type of government, you know, paranoia thriller where some just protocol gets enacted where all of a sudden like society just changes. Um, it's just a very scary premise. And then on top of that, it does also make me think that maybe Dan O'Bannon um, was inspired partly by this, maybe even for Alien. Um, I had just seen Alien again recently and I was kind of struck you know, right after I just saw the crazies and I was like, you know, return of the living dead has an element that, you know, kind of on the surface reminds me more of the crazies, mm-hmm. the, the sort of the, you know, call this number on the barrel. And then what, you know, yeah. as a result yeah. of what happens, it's like, Oh, that's what's happening. Like the, the guy on the phone, I think one of the best parts about that, the commentary in that movie, as far as the military is like the guy on the phones just sounds so casual. And he's like, he seems nervous throughout the movie. They don't really establish much about that, but then like he almost seems like relieved and just like, yeah, like, okay, what did you see? Okay. Got it. And then he just like activates, you know, I don't want to spoil that movie, but it's, yeah, it had. And so I'm wondering, you know, Dan O'Bannon um, was, I mean, I don't know. Do you see any relationship between alien and, and the crazies as far as like, 
that theme being even just a little bit there in Alien? Am I even making sense? Um, may, I don't know. I, I that did not occur to me exactly. Mm-hmm. Um, but as as far as the um, yeah, the martial law goes, you you mentioned that like this could be is a protocol that could be enacted for anything, not just bioweapons. Mm-hmm. And there's a line one of the like civilian guys says where they're like very cynical about the army and it's alluded to that they had been in the army, you know, they were kind of jaded about it or at least one of the guys was. Um, but he says something about how like when campus riots turn, uh, you know, start going on, the yeah. military comes in and turns it into a bloodbath, which I'm sure was like an allusion to Kent state, but it's, it totally puts you into the window of like how this could have played at the time where it's like, yeah, they don't need to do this just for bioweapons. They would do this for social control to, um, you know, like 1968 Chicago riots, um, you know, outside of the DNC. This is totally the kind of response. And there's actually a doc, it made me think of this documentary that um, just came out this year. I'm not sure where it's, if it's available widely yet or not, but um, it's called Riotsville, USA. And it's about, it has a lot of like um, original footage from this fake town that the military built in, I think like North Carolina. And the the whole purpose of the fake town was that they would do drills for riot control. Yeah. And so they would, you know, they would go in and they would, um, there would be military guys acting like rioters and they would, you know, do the like kettling stuff and they would do the, you know, you use tear gas here, you maybe you shoot people here and and then they implement the thesis of the movie is that they implemented all of that stuff in 1968 in Miami <clears throat> at the RNC because the RNC did have these pockets of like um, protests and, and um, discontent breaking out. And unlike Chicago, they were completely clamped down and, um, you know, you ba- basically didn't interfere with the convention at all. They actually shut down bridges into Miami when the convention was going on and um, made sure that anybody who, you know, had any discontent, it was like pushed to the side and, um, you know, it didn't become this like conf- huge confrontation like it was in mm-hmm. Chicago. And so you, it's like completely the same thing here. It's just, it happens to be bioweapons, but they're, you know, they have, like you said, this this protocol enacted and you just go in and you just um, use whatever force you have to to make sure that every single person in the town uh, complies and you push them all to wherever you need to get them to quarantine them. And, you know, in this movie, they leave open the option of just literally nuking the town uh, if they have to. Which so is so the great. virus doesn't escape. Yeah. Yeah. The way that they I mean, and they're kind of they just seem very. Also, like they're just going, you know, it's like a very strict sort of protocol. It's not even right. really, there's not very much emotion behind like it. Like they don't want to do it, but yeah, they will if they have to, you know, that's what you have to do. Yeah, yeah. And it's also the way they talk about like covering it up in pretty casual terms too. It's just like, mm-hmm. of course you have to cover it up. It's a offensive bioweapon. You know, you can't let that get out to the public. Mm-hmm. So we're going to have to cover it up. And I love that part where they, um, they talk about a cover story being radiation leaking out and that, uh-huh. like everybody already knows nuclear weapon. We have nuclear weapons and they're bad. So we'll just blame it on radiation. That's good. Yeah, no, that was beautiful. That it's a bioweapon. Yeah. It's great too, because, uh, you know, I was born in 1981, 
but I would say, you know, just try to imagine when this movie came out in 1973. Uh, I think this was either, was it right before or like around the, t- I mean, had we signed the biological weapons convention treaty yet? I was thinking about, yeah, it would have been right after that, like um, a so, couple years, I think. So it was already, so even if it was right after, the idea that America was making bioweapons openly uh, and like that people's cynicism was, you know, probably just added a level to be like, well, yeah, that would be something that could happen. Like it's, it's such a, just, it's almost like that's a secondary premise. I think in terms of like, if you think about the era this is made, it's like, yeah, that is a scary premise of a bioweapon, but the movie's not really about that. Like even the yeah. remake um, makes the mistake of, you know, there is some stuff in the movie where it's just like, oh, this person's going crazy, you know, from the, even, even some of the scenes where it shows the, and I kind of almost wonder if the scene at the end where they they are mowing down a lot of people, um, cause it, it almost, look, it almost is implying that they're, these, some of these people are, have already gone crazy too, or maybe they all are, uh, like the guy throwing dynamite at the military, that girl right, behind yeah. them sweeping. Part of me wonders if Romero, got kind of coerced or told like you can't just have scenes of the military mowing like you have there's a limit to how many just like mowing down completely innocent people you can show like per you know minute or whatever um and so that the idea that these people also go crazy might give him sort of a little cushion to to shows that brutality but not you know not do it to go like over the edge where people would have just been like you know almost like thought it was like an anti-military movie or something yeah Um, i think it does play with the idea of like is like especially the green beret guy who gets violent and kills the three military dudes in the mm -hmm. that kitchen or whatever like is he going crazy or because he keeps saying like i'm not right in the head or whatever or is he just reacting normally to the crazy situation you know that's the one of the dynamics going on. I would there. say this movie has, uh, it plays more on that premise of if they're going crazy or not, or if they're just reacting to the situation, like, you know, it's like a stress reaction. There's clear, yeah. there are clear examples in the movie of these people have the virus. They're, they're acting crazy. Um, but then there's also examples like you're talking about, like the scene where the guy starts like making out with her in the bed and the guy catches right, him. Yeah. It's like, there's all this stuff happening where it, almost also kind of reminds a little bit of like the thing where it's like, are these people actually you know, turning? There's a sort of heightened paranoia. Um, but in the remake, it's very, they don't really play with that very much. Or if they do, it's very brief and it's just to get to sequences where people are just having total freakouts, like, yeah. you know, blowing their own head off on a baseball field. It's like it, you know, and it, it's a completely different or reinterpretation of the movie. Have you seen the remake? Yeah, I saw it like when it came out. I I remember getting it from a red box. So whenever it came out, <laughs> it was around that time. Um, yeah, the I don't have like a, a real um, fresh memory of it. But yeah, what you're saying is how I remember it, that it was a lot of like set piece kind of things of here's a person going crazy and you know, it's violent and um, yeah. it plays a little bit more like a regular horror movie than this one, which is, 
kind of in between. It's sort of like a zombie movie. It's kind of like a action movie. It's mm-hmm. kind of, you know, it's in between a lot of things. Well, it's interesting you've mentioned that it's like a zombie movie because, I mean, this could almost be seen as like a, it's not necessarily a spiritual sequel to Night of the Living Dead, but it has enough similarities, especially to the way mm-hmm. that Night of the Living Dead ends, yeah, um, totally. that it could almost be seen as like a bridge in between the Dawn of, or Night of the Living Dead and Dawn of the Dead. Um, yeah, because very similar themes pop up in Dawn of the Dead, um, and also it the theme is even explored more about like just mowing down people. Like, are they are they people anymore? You know, and uh, like mm-hmm. this, especially the scene in Dawn of the Dead, which I think you know is, is still amazing. Is like almost like that documentary style montage of like the rednecks and the military, just like almost yeah. having like a like a um, tailgating party, like blowing away exactly. zombies. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, amazing. And, um, yeah, Night of the Living Dead. And it the just the casting of um, Dwayne Jones, I think is his name, is the, the lead. You know, having a black actor there mm-hmm. it just, like, changes the entire meaning and dynamic of what happens in that final mm-hmm. sequence of uh, Night of the Living Dead. I mean, it's so that, – that's what's always great about Romero is that he's not really subtle, but he also doesn't, like – too much hold your hand and tell you this is exactly what I'm trying to say here. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like clear enough just from the way he presents it, I think. Yeah. Um, I, and I think it's, I, I, I mean, he really ha- does insert a lot of these kind of politics into pretty much all of his movies. Um, for sure. Yeah. The ones that I've seen at least, I mean, I haven't seen night riders, um, which I, I, that's a, that's a pretty crazy movie, right? Yeah. It's not really crazy, but it's like, it, it's very, odd and it very, sounds odd <laughs> it's really yeah and it's weird too because it's about for people who don't know motorcycle jousting like medieval reenactments <laughs> oh and, it's about uh, reenactments like, okay yeah yeah and so they ride motorcycles around and like reenact jousting fascinating um and they're dressed up like knights and stuff but it's really more about like the process of making a movie about like having a small like collective mm-hmm. band of people who are engaged in a creative endeavor. It sounds like, like the original the, magic Mike. It is kind of like that. <laughs> <laughs> Ed Harris doesn't get naked. As <laughs> oh, that's Although I think Tom Savini uh, pl- is in the movie too. And uh, I think you do see his, him barrel dusted <laughs> a, a few times. Um, but yeah, it's pretty cool. Cause there was really about that. Like um, the, and like the power struggles that develop in a, in a culture like that, you know? So there's a lot of like Ed Harris versus Tom Savini and like, what do we want to do with our medieval jousting thing? That's you fucking know? amazing. I have no, would have never thought uh, yeah. that that would be like one to check out. It's, I mean, but it makes sense. It's, and it it's sounds crazy too. really Yeah. And it's also like two and a half hours long for wow. some reason, but it, it, it's a pretty fascinating movie. And speaking of Tom Savini, um, have you seen the night of the living dead remake that he did? Yeah, yeah. What What is your opinion on, because I haven't seen it in a while, but I have this idea of it in my mind that it actually does sort of a cop-out thing at the ending where it sort of removes a lot of the political charge that the original had. Um, That's a good question. I don't remember clearly the plot. I just remember, mostly I just remember that I thought the gore was really good in it. Yeah, no, it is, yeah. And, um, but and yeah, what, it's been too long since I've seen it to remember the, like how it wraps up. 
it's sort well the power dynamic between the two leads is very different in the remake. They make her more of like a Ripley, a Sigourney okay, yeah. Weaver type who gets more and more brave and sort of you know survivalist as the movie goes on. Um, and spoilers for people who haven't seen Night of the Living Dead or the remake, the key change that was made, and I'm pretty sure I'm remembering this correctly, was that um, the the lead black character. Um, who in the original basically gets just shot in cold blood, um, you know, because they're going around basically shooting all the zombies and he's not, he's not a zombie and they kill him at the end of the Night mm-hmm. Living Dead. Um, in this one, he turns into a zombie uh, and then they kill him. And, oh. she, and she's sort of just like, oh, that's too bad. Like her reaction is like, oh, like don't shoot him. He's not a, oh, he is like, and that's how it ends. And oh man, yeah, I don't remember that, but that's disappointing if that is. It's yeah. a very odd change to make too. Like I'm, it's, right. I'm wondering why they would have done that. I mean, the movie made some other small t- changes here and there, but that's like the main one that I, I, that I mean, since I understand the political commentary, like in Night Living and Better, as I've gotten older, it's I, I'm, I'm just really baffled um, by that because I remember I really liking it. Like when I was younger, like I thought it was a really well done, um, you know, solid remake from beginning right. to end. Um, but uh, but yeah, I mean, Tom Savini, of course, uh, did some of like the, you know, some of the best like practical effects ever in horror cinema. I mean, even Friday the 13th, the only thing that really separated that movie from other slasher movies was the gore effects in it, which totally yeah. they've apparently significantly cut down um to the point where i don't even know if there is a release of the movie that exists anywhere that has the original length of each gore effect shot that he did did you know that that like i didn't know they cut it down yeah it was so gory it was so gory originally like the kevin bacon scene death scene in it Uh uh-huh they they the one that was originally shot is like almost looks like the arrow is like fucking his neck after it like goes all the way through. Like it keeps okay. going in and out and like blood's just like spurting out. Yeah. Um, so it's stuff, a lot of stuff like that. I mean, Tom Savini was probably like, Oh my God, this is, I know it must be like the goriest movie ever. Yeah. And then well, have you ever seen the burning? No. So it's kind of similar to Friday the 13th. It's a um, summer camp slasher movie basically. Um, but that one has it, Tom Savini did the effects for that, and that that is I remember some really really brutal gore. I gotta and, see that. Yeah, Jason Alexander is a <laughs> is in it, and I think it was written by one of the Weinstein brothers. Holy too, shit! I think, which is oh my god. Yeah, uh, so you can watch it with that um, that in mind. Oh, and you'll you'll appreciate. Yeah, um, Rick Wakeman did the uh, the music. Oh for hell it. yeah. Yeah. So it's got like a weird, like moody synthesizer. Yeah, score. yeah, yeah. Um, I, I, the only reason I mentioned Tom Savini again, other than his weird Night of the Living Dead remake, was uh because he did. I mean, he really upped the ante again, um, with gore effects. I mean, Day of the Dead, which yeah. is like the last, and that's a very political movie too. But we're we're mm-hmm. we'll talk about that another time. But like. I mean, it still to this day has some of like the most insane, best looking gore effects ever, like on yeah. film. Oh, it, yeah. It's so, I mean, some some of it's even like turns your stomach to watch, especially even after reading how 
uh, it was done where they actually used like real animal entrails for a lot of that. And then they didn't refrigerate them properly. So the last scene, (laughs) you know, where he's getting torn in half, like he said, he almost like puked because it was just so rotten smelling. Um, yeah, it's, 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 I mean, it's, it's crazy. It's, I mean, it's, it's a masterpiece of, uh, in terms of the visuals, it's not my favorite of the, of his trilogy, but it's right. It, I mean, it's honestly, maybe it's my least favorite, but that's still, it's still an amazing, uh, movie. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah, I agree. And it is like the crazies too, in that it's got this heavy militaristic (laughs) element and, um, has the same quality where it's kind of people shouting at each other a lot, yeah, yeah, yeah. which is something Romero kind of fall one trap that he falls into where just to amp up the tension. It's just like people are screaming all the time. Yeah. Well, one, one, just before we move on to the, to the next film, I want to talk about, and I want to give you an opportunity to give your last uh, word about yeah. the crazies. But one other thing I wanted to mention about it that I thought was really good was the amount of people in the movie i mean it it does it really does feel like especially for such like a shoestring budget film that there really is like a town full of people um that there's tons of military coming in you know i don't know how many of these people are just the same actor or crew members dressed in these like full white hazmat suits but i mean it's it feels it has it almost gives it like a documentary-esque feel at times with how much activity is happening on screen like in the background sometimes it, you know you're meant to focus on it but a lot of the time it's just sort of like it's meant it's like meant to sensory overload you you know even the yeah. scenes where they go through the houses like you were talking about go by very quickly like if you're you know you yeah, look away and go in the so kitchen fast. for a second you'll you might not even see that scene so he really overloads you with like lots of visual detail to give you this um and then you know going back to the conspiracy sort of that that's one of the more scary aspects of this is just an activated sort of machinery response um, is the compartmentalized nature of it too is really scary mm-hmm. to me. How, you know, even the people who seem to be in charge don't really seem to be in charge, you know, but they still have, you know, and even the lower level guys, like that one scene where they, uh, they get in like a tussle with the cop and then shoot him. Mm-hmm. Um, like, it's just all that stuff I thought was really good because uh, not necessarily saying that's how it would realistically play out, but like just people not knowing and being compartmentalized and having like this sort of hierarchy uh, is also scary to me because it's like, you know, why would you give all, you know, information to like lower level people, you know, just like the brute force enforcers. And, yeah. uh, you know, I don't know, maybe maybe at one point they were like, can we have just, like, them just look like U.S. soldiers? And then the, the people are like, no, you can't do that. Like, you can't uh-huh. have, like, U.S. soldiers, like, mowing down civilians. So, but it, it, it also kind of heightens the the horror level of it to have the that look. Um, and it's, yeah. I don't know if that was based on a real hazard suit. It almost looked like a chemical weapons, like, military field suit or something. Like, um I don't know if you know where that suit comes from or if that's like, you know. Not really, but it works well for the gore too in the sense that it's really easy to just like, you know, have the blood spurt out totally, and, yeah. on the white and that looks really cool. But yeah, I, I don't for me, it makes them look scarier because they look less <clears throat> human and it, it looks like kind of a weird invading force. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, um, it, it gives it sort of this faceless, um, yeah, like anonymous robotic 
quality to it. Yeah. Um. So yeah, I I jotted down a few other things on the kind of conspiratorial angle of the film, which I mean, again, you know, it's about a basically the U.S. creating a bioweapon that they have no vaccine for. And one of the things early in the movie is that people think that it was actually uh, that it was a vaccine that got um, uh, leaked out or whatever. Um, and then they later kind of reveal that the vaccine part of it was just a cover story. It was always just meant as an offensive bioweapon and that they developed it with no excuse me, with no um, antidote at all. <laughs> so they, you know, they have no way of curing it. And so, I mean, you know, for if you take a conspiratorial view of, of COVID or any other kind of uh, outbreaks that have happened, um, you know, you can read into it that that maybe is, is sort of what has happened with uh, what the U.S. government is doing, that they kind of pretend that they're doing things to counteract the potential weapons that could be built or, you know, uh, made by an enemy when in fact they're just covertly creating their own stockpiles of bioweapons and that, you know, we may very well deal with the, the consequences of those. Yeah. And, and just um, nuking a town if, if necessary, if necessary. Yeah. And I also really like, so I don't know if the version you watched was like this, but the title screen when it comes up actually didn't say the crazies on the one that I watched. Yeah, No, was, same with me. Yeah. Yeah. The alternate title, which is codename Trixie. <laughs> Which I can what? understand why they didn't go with that. Oh, did you have a different title? I I think I did, but no, maybe that was the title. Does it have another title too? Well, apparently, it, I this was just like on the Wikipedia page, but they I guess tried releasing it in different cities, to yeah, different yeah, times yeah. with different titles. So um, and George Romero later said that because he, he they were asked like, was that a bad way to market the movie? He's like, no, that was like the best way to market the movie. He's like, they yeah, did a wonderful weird, job on like, <laughs> I yeah. mean, I get maybe that's is that like the Italian filmmaking like influence maybe? Yeah, like, I mean, they would weird... always do it, but yeah, Codename Trixie is such a weird title. Although it does, I mean, it they say that phrase in mm -hmm. the movie, and what I was just gonna say is I like that because the uh, it's such a nefarious, horrible project that they're doing yeah. developing this, you know. Uh, bioweapon and then they give it such a nice name of Trixie. Totally, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. No, it's great. Um, but yeah, there was also just some like, for, you know, I don't, not that it was super prescient on some of these levels, but like there's um, one moment where the woman is like wearing a gas mask and she like takes it off even though she's right by a virus, a viral sample. And, um, you know, it made me think of just the anti-mask like, you know, thing that, yeah, yeah. that happened with people like you know, I'd rather I'd rather take my chances than have to wear this annoying mask. You know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's now that you're mentioning all this stuff. I mean, I I didn't pick up on all this stuff when I was watching it again, but it's it's surprisingly like high level. I mean, it kind of yeah. makes me want to actually go and read this story that it's based on to see, you know, was this guy getting was this guy ex military who wrote this? Did he work in the defense industry like you know because a lot of these all a lot of these later books including the hot zone um and then his later one demon in the freezer by um what's his face something preston uh, preston richard, richard preston. preston yeah uh those books were just basically and the cobra event those books were all just like uh being fed to him by insiders like you know yeah, that's spinning crazy. spinning yarns about fantasy scenarios of how like the enemy would use a bioweapon against us 
So it kind of makes me wonder, was this, you know, a book this early about something like this? Um, I don't know. I'm just sort of wondering. Yeah, I don't know if he, I, I have no idea on that level, but I did notice there was um, like a military advisor and a medical advisor both listed in the credits. Interesting. So those would be interesting people to look up to see <laughs> if they had any kind of, you know, what their roles in the military were. Because there's definitely, I mean, I mean, you can tell there is like some kind of medical and military advice just based on some of the details. Sure. Deal, like, yeah, things yeah. that you wouldn't get. I mean, they talk about like natural immunity, you know, is mm -hmm. being kind of a big uh, what they're looking for defense against it. And just certain details like that have the medical advisor, you know, you could see where that would come in. Yeah. And I am I wrong in I, I don't remember seeing any actual like footage of military equipment that seemed like stuff that they couldn't just sort of rent from a you know, like a prop place, like, cause that would, I mean, I would be really surprised the military let them use, you know, take shots of helicopters or a base. I don't remember seeing anything yeah. like that in the movie. I don't remember any. Yeah. Yeah. There's not tanks rolling through town. No. You don't even see the, which I'm sure he would have helicopter. Yeah, exactly. Be carrying the bomb. Yeah. Know? I noticed that. So it's, it actually kind of helps the movie in a way that you don't see a lot of that stuff. You just know that they have like yeah. access to it. Um, but yeah, it, I mean, it tells me that the military, you know, maybe he actually, I go to imagine George Romero would probably love to have shot a tank, you know, in one of those shots. Yeah. Um, but they, I would, you know, who's going to let him do that. Um, right. Right. The content. The one last thing I wanted to mention about it, that just a scene I just remembered that I thought was almost just funny watching now is the scene where they first get, um, like those anti, I guess they're antibiotic injections and everybody just sort of very cavalier, like putting their arms out, you know, mm -hmm. like it, they're just doing it so fast, you know, yeah. like it's yeah. th that, I just thought that scene was really funny. I mean, like, it's like sort of how, um, I don't even really know what I, I mean, it just reminds you of, you know, the whole vaccine fucking yeah. politics now, but, um, right. Well, and yeah, that's it that kind of reminded me of contagion too, where it's like, everybody is so in that movie, very, very, very eager to get the vaccine. Yeah. Um, and that, that movie also has the like disinformation quote unquote character too, with the Jude law thing. So th yeah, yeah. that movie is pretty, I, I think there's some spooky elements there in terms of how, Oh, absolutely. You know, that was put together. But. I, I think Steven Soderbergh, like, I don't want to say this cause I actually like think Steven Soderbergh is like really brilliant filmmaker, but he yeah, definitely I, seems like he's gotten, I don't know, channeled or like he's channeling. He has a, a, quite a few of his last movies like channeled some kind of weird propagandistic politics of some form. Like yeah. he did one that was about like the Panama Papers that was really right. just like a, all about China. It um, had a whole section, yeah, and like Falun Gong. That was really uh, strange. Organ harvesting. That I was, mean, organ harvesting from Falun Gong members. Exactly, yeah, that was, yeah. and it was like totally uh, like gratuitous. I mean, it, didn't even really play into the story. It was very yeah. strange. That was one of his worst movies, yeah. too, I think. But, um, yeah. but no, you're right. There's, I, uh, there's, I definitely think there had to have been. I mean, it's so similar too to like the event two zero one or like those like weird think tank yeah. exercises that there was something. You know, I don't know. It is um, like a simulation, like one of those tabletop simulations yeah. as a movie. Mm -hmm. And there were, I, I did look into it a little bit and I never fully went down this road, but like 
Larry Brilliant is the name of one guy who's big in the biodefense world. And he had been like I, not only an advisor on the movie, but I think he had like shepherded the whole project. Like, mm-hmm. it, you know, he had essentially hired somebody to write the screenplay before maybe yeah. Soderbergh was involved. And It wouldn't surprise me at all. Yeah. I mean, yeah. a lot of projects in Hollywood are just either being like kicked around or, you know, scripts that are sort of like given to directors. Right. Um, totally. So who knows exactly what happened, but I don't, yeah, I don't trust Steven Soderbergh as far as his, you know, political messages in his movies, but I right. still check out his movies. Um, his last, yeah, yeah. Yeah. his last one was kind of, off the wall it was like an alexa Jimmy, thriller yeah yeah <laughs> um, i enjoyed it yeah yeah it was it was fun yeah. uh the one he shot on an iphone was was okay um i think i forget the name of it unsane unsane yeah yeah um, i like that yeah like the first two thirds or so i liked a lot and then mm-hmm. they kind of fell apart a little bit but yeah i mean he's always got some interesting things to bring to the table even yeah you know, he's a smart guy for movies. sure yeah. um so uh, do you want to do you want to stay on for like another twenty minutes? Is that okay? Uh, yeah, yeah, we can talk about the yeah okay. the other one. Um, so this other movie that um you introduced me to and you suggested for this Halloween special um was a movie called Death Dream, uh, from nineteen seventy four, and I guess this also has an alternate title called Dead of Night. Um, right. And this was directed by uh, Bob Clark, who. I'm not familiar with, so I want you to tell me a little bit about him and written sure. by Alan Ormsby. Um, but it's a very unique movie for a lot of different reasons, very ahead of its time. Um, and so, yeah, why don't you tell us a little bit about the director and, and why you wanted to talk about this? Yeah, sure. So the director, uh, Bob Clark is not super well known. I wouldn't, or I mean, just his name is not super well known. Um, he's, most famous, I guess, for directing a Christmas story, <laughs> which is obviously not a horror movie. Um, and he did Porky's as well. And he did like the last oh, wow. movie he ever directed was the baby geniuses two or something. So he, you know, he kind of, the career went in a, a certain direction, but early on he was a horror director and he did a, a cool movie that I haven't seen in a long time called children shouldn't play with dead things, which is kind of a, a horror comedy kind of thing. Um, uh, it's got uh, sort of a zombie element and it's got um, like a theater troupe involved and stuff like this. Um, but uh, right after that, he did Death Dream and Black Christmas, the original Black Christmas. Oh, no shit. Oh, yeah, right yeah, yeah. Okay. Time. So, um, and Black Christmas is, some people call that the first slasher movie. Mm-hmm. Um but, you know, that's obviously in dispute and it's not, you know, Halloween really crystallized the formula, of course, but that one definitely is prescient in terms of like, you know, it's a stalking killer with a knife and they're picking mm-hmm. sorority girls one by one and all that stuff. Um, and he's a, he's Canadian originally. And I think a lot of those early movies had kind of maybe co Canadian U S financing or something. Um, but this movie I'd always I had seen years ago and it always really stuck with me. And part of the reason is that it came out in 1974 and it's one of really the first narrative feature films that is directly about the Vietnam War. 
which is kind of crazy to say because the war was going on for like six or seven years at that point. And, you know, I'm sure you could find underground movies that allude to the Vietnam War and, you know, movies that at least mention it maybe in a by the way kind of mm-hmm. aspect. But this movie begins in Vietnam with a soldier uh, watching a bunch of his friends get killed and then he himself gets killed. And through kind of not any mechanism that's really explained or anything, his mom's like prayer that he will come back um you know, that he'll come back and that he doesn't die uh, comes true. And so he shows up back at home uh, as somebody who doesn't seem like himself, you know, mm-hmm. like to believe. He's uh, played by a guy I don't know, Richard Backus, who has a very weird kind of eerie, smiling mannequin <laughs> sort of <laughs> quality about mm-hmm. him. And he's kind of like, you're, you know, I mean, he's definitely physically there, but he's kind of a zombie. He's kind of a ghost. He's kind of a serial killer. It's sort of a mi- it, it's it's in that period where they hadn't really like crystallized genres so much. So it's like sort of a zombie movie. It's sort of a slasher movie. It's not really either of those kind of a ghost story. And what's I think really interesting about it is that it um one that it is. So one of the first movies really to directly like mainstream narrative features to um, addressed the Vietnam War. And the way it does it is, I think, kind of fascinating because it's this idea that I think is also in play in the crazies that, like, the war, the big fear, I think, and you could read this into other horror movies of the early 70s, too. The big fear is that the war is coming home, you know? Mm-hmm. Like, we, there, and there's kind of like a guilt complex about it. You can kind of feel that in the movie where it's like, we sent these guys off there to do these terrible things. And what if they came back and started doing them to us, you know, Mm -hmm. and the crazy is kind of like, you know, we have this military infrastructure that can do these terrible things. What if they start doing that to us? So for him, you know, he goes back to his nuclear family and of course they're pretty fucked up as it turns out his, and, um, there's some interesting elements too, with the, um, uh, the kind of generation gap, you know, that his dad is like, well, I went, I, you know, I fought in World War II <laughs> and, uh, you know, I don't go around complaining about it or whatever. And meanwhile, we find out that he's a, you know, sort of raging alcoholic <laughs> yelling at his son and all this stuff. So I think there's a lot of interesting stuff there um, in it. it. It's a little, I mean, it's fairly slow in how it develops. So, you know, it's not, it probably could use a few more kills, <laughs> you know, to juice mm-hmm. things up. But the kills that are there are pretty effective, I think. Uh, and um, uh, I think just the this uh, the the scenario is what kind of uh, you know captures it for me, or, or what what is intriguing, I think, about it. Yeah, it's it's really interesting that it. I mean, as far as I can tell, and and then I know of it, it does seem to be like one of the earliest uh, films to reference the Vietnam War um it has imagery in it that seems like it's really influenced a lot of stuff that's been about like trauma during war afterwards I mean just the Mm -hmm. opening you know I guess I don't know if this is it's supposed to be literal but like if it's like a flashback to him getting killed or if it's a dream um it's it reminds me of a lot of stuff that came out afterwards I mean like the Mm -hmm. the sort of the fire the darkness I mean um, the shaking camera, 
the sound effects. Um, so that that in of itself is really intriguing to me that it it seems like, you know, this sort of darkness of the Vietnam War is like also on display in here just visually and aesthetically and cinematically. So, right. but then what also really struck me about it was if I didn't know what this movie was about, like if I had, let's say, missed the first like 20 minutes of it or something or 15 minutes and just jumped into it, it the movie can almost read like this guy just has like terrible PTSD. Yeah, totally. He is like blank. Um, he has no emotion. He is devoid of any, uh, you know, similarities to the person he once was. Like he's like, right. like he's like metaphorical ghost almost. And I, I don't know. Is there any information that you know of, of like, did Alan Ormsby mean to put that theme in it? Cause that, I mean, that also, if that's even in play, it almost seems like that's like, crazily ahead of its time i mean maybe there was all already talk of like you know i mean the, i guess the how many soldiers you know were are I, I guess ptsd not maybe not the freight like the acronym but like the concept of it was probably already you know in play culturally but um it just yeah shell shock i think they called it yeah back in the old even older days mm -hmm. i mean but like I, I i kept thinking about deer hunter um Mm -hmm. And, you know, I know that that film is like very iconic in people's minds of being this like one of the best films sort of about the Vietnam War. But I don't know. I mean, do you think that this maybe had some influence or inspiration there? Because I don't know. There's just like a I feel like Christopher Walken's character. It could it's like this almost like like this character in this movie. That's um, true. Yeah, you could definitely imagine Christopher Walken in the lead role of this movie. Mm -hmm. Um for sure. It actually even maybe even more than Deer Hunter, it reminded me of Christopher Walken's little cameo role in Annie Hall, where he's like, a, <laughs> you know, have you ever seen that where he's like a I don't remember psychotic brother of of uh, Diane Keaton, I guess it is. And he's like driving Woody Allen and he's like, you know, I could just veer off and drive right into the <laughs> headlights. You ever think about that? So, yeah. Um, but as far as Alan Ormsby goes, I don't know what exactly what his background is. I think he had just come up with Bob Clark um, and he ended up being a pretty mainstream uh, screenwriter where yeah. um, he wrote uh, Cat People, the Paul Schrader uh, movie. And I think he worked on Mulan or something. Well, it says um, here of the thing I just pulled up. Uh, this is really interesting. Uh, and I didn't even know this. Apparently the, the mummy remake was being set up for joe dante like to shepherd in a remake oh man that would have been awesome for universal and he wrote uh, the script for it which later got like kind of fiddled with and turned into the brendan yeah. fraser movie which interesting it's kind of fascinating because like tonally i could see joe dante like someone writing yeah. a script for <laughs> joe dante to direct it has his some of his sensibilities in it you know that but yeah you know i would have rather seen yeah. a joe dante version of that if i'm being honest oh. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, I, I mean, Joe Dante is, that would be a whole podcast because he's, you know, so smart and so satirical with, with stuff and yeah, a mummy movie from him would have been awesome. Yeah. I mean, um, a lot of people I don't think have seen, have seen Gremlins 2 realize that like one of the biggest tentpole movies, you know, Jurassic World um, of like the last five years is basically like a Gremlins 2 uh, homage in a lot of ways. Like it's, oh. <laughs> I mean, it, have you seen it? Uh, 
Uh, I never actually no. I I didn't see any of the new Jurassic. They're terrible. Movies. Yeah, that's what I heard, and it was, I didn't have enough uh, <laughs> vested to to do it. So, as far as like the the horror themes in this movie, I I liked what you said about how this is sort of before some of these genres got crystallized, because that's very apparent. In yeah, it's like you know, I mean, I guess at the initially. Like, are you supposed to, is the movie supposed to make it really obvious that this isn't, that he is actually dead in the beginning? Or is it, or is it kind of trying know. to be ambiguous? I think, yeah, in a way it like doesn't matter to what the film does because mm-hmm. he's, it's not like he's a ghost, you know, he is a physical presence. Um, but yeah, he could be, I mean, the way it's cut together is that he's in Vietnam, He apparently dies and then he's suddenly just in, back home or mm-hmm. back in his home near his hometown. So, um, yeah, I don't know. I guess I take him to be kind of like a reincarnated version, but like you said, like you talked about, it's, it's really, he is embodying this idea of PTSD. I think this mm-hmm. idea that you, you know, go through this military structure and you go, you know, basically you're asked to commit, horrible atrocities abroad and you watch all your friends die and you know you're expected to come back to a normal suburban life and just be fine mm-hmm. and he's obviously not fine whether he's dead or not he is you know clearly not fine he doesn't really want to talk to his family he just sits in his room rocking in the the rocking chair a lot and um yeah, I mean, I think it's kind of, you know, it, it is kind of affecting on that level. Um, it it reminded me, or the movie, you had mentioned Deer Hunter, but what, uh, which does it make a lot of sense because that movie is about the, oh, here's the before, here's the during the war, here's the aftermath. Mm-hmm. Um, but the movie it maybe reminded me more, more of is Full Metal Jacket in the sense mm-hmm. that it's um, Full Metal Jacket, you know, it's, the two part structure where the first part is them just completely breaking down your, your psyche and turning you into a sociopath basically. And then the second part is, you know, enacting that in practice and how it, you know, the parts where it does uh, work in the sense that you, you know, you lose your humanity and the parts where, you know, it doesn't cause it doesn't totally train you for like just being in the midst of war and stuff. Um, and here it, it, it totally felt like that kind of like um, Gomer Pyle character, you know, he's gone through the process and he's just been turned into this like blank slate Mm -hmm. killer. You know, the only thing he exists to do is to kill. And that's really the only thing he does do, you know, when he's back, back home for the, the duration of the film. Yeah. The sort of the blankness, his emotional affect is very obviously intentional and, and, and it does, yeah, it does, it is reminiscent of that, um, mm-hmm. the the sort of program to kill thing. Yeah. Um, but what else was I going to say? Oh, yeah. Uh, and I don't, I couldn't find any reference to this, but I do, I do know that there was, um, you know, the concept of a doppelganger goes back uh, way before World War One. But I think similar to what you were saying about shell shock, I think one of the earlier sort of ways people would describe PTSD is some of the like wives of um, soldiers, you know, who returned from the war, uh, they were described as like like a doppelganger, um, mm. like like they 
you know, and that was, you know, in the, before that it was, a lot of people would use it almost to describe like someone who had died and returned. Um, but it, I, I'd like that idea of that, that like, you know, maybe that he was sort of playing with that concept. Like it's, you know, it's not really him. Um, it sort of embodies more of like what a doppelganger means, right. uh, you know, where it's, it's like, you know, and the way the family sort of reacts to him initially, I feel like the, the probably the main weakness of the movie for me was that maybe a little bit too much of his family in it. Mm -hmm. um, but I thought that they were, I mean, that was like a really integral part to like establishing that he isn't the same person. And they're like, you know, they still want to love him and he's their son, but then like they just know something's not right. Uh, right. Um, and then, I mean, that brutal scene where he, <laughs> he strangles the, the, um, family dog. Um, yeah. but that one was interesting. Cause it's like, you could almost see that too, as like a guy with PTSD snapping, you know, mm -hmm. like totally. you saw that yeah. scene in another context. Um, or even the scene where the guy is talking about, uh, world war two and he's like talking about it really casually and like, you know, uh, and the guy, and he, and he just sort of looks stone faced, like he's reliving something in his yeah. mind, you know. Um, so I don't know. It would be interesting to find out what inspired this movie, like why they decided to focus on that. Um, and then it ends with, I don't know if you want to talk about the ending. I mean, the the sure. last scene yeah. was like particularly, I I don't know what political commentary they're trying to make there, but it, it did seem like, I mean, I mean, I'll just spoil it if you haven't seen this movie. Fast forward. Uh, but the, the like sort of the main character, this doppelganger or uh, ghost version of himself, is almost like disintegrating or like uh -huh. physically, um, like just I don't know if he's like aging rapidly or it's almost like he's becoming decaying, yeah like decaying yeah. like he's like becoming like a zombie like decaying, right. and at the very end he's basically like takes his mom to what looks like like a weird makeshift gravestone. Of like where he was, or his grave was, I, and I don't know exactly. I mean, did they show that at a previous point in the movie? Yeah, there's a moment earlier in the movie where he goes to a graveyard, but you don't really know what he's doing. And I okay. guess what he it turns out, and it yeah, it's a little clunky the beginning part how it does it, but um yeah, he had basically written his name and okay dates of death on the grave, the headstone. Yeah, so he's he's there basically like decaying and and sort of. I think by the time you see him at his own little makeshift gravesite, he's looks like they have like a whole, like his nose looks like it's gone. They like, I have him like fully zombified mm -hmm. and yeah. he's, and he just, it looks, I mean, it looks like he's just trying to bury himself in the dirt. Like, and yeah. his mom is just sort of like crying and like kneeling above him. And I don't know. I thought it was really interesting the way they showed the cops running in, like about to like, you know, take this zombie monster down or or circular or whatever they thought it was. Right. And then instead they're just sort of like stunned by yeah. the scene that they're watching. Um, really interesting choice for like the way to end a horror movie. I, I don't really never seen anything like that where it's like, yeah. uh, what, do you, the, what are your thoughts on that? Well, yeah, I think, I think it is really affecting and it is strange because again, it's where he is kind of a zombie, I guess, but it, he also like steals blood at, at, or he kind of sucks out the blood or injects it into himself. Yeah. So he's sort of like a vampire a little bit too. Yeah. Yeah. That's true. Um, yeah. She so sees the track like marks on his arm and she's like, what's yeah. wrong? Like what happened? 
And that, I mean, you know, I guess I took that to be kind of an allusion to the like heroin addiction, you exactly, know, that, yeah. uh, um, soldiers would come back with. And, um, the thing I, I think is really interesting is the dad character who, you know, is like very dismissive of him. He's like angry almost immediately when he comes back mm -hmm. home. And what you kind of start to realize, I think, is like his dad was in World War II. He never dealt with any of the horrible things he had seen there and done, probably. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, he just deals with it by drinking a lot. And then in the end, you know, he has this choice where, he, again, this is a big spoiler, I guess. But um, you think he's going to kill his son because he's been so angry with him the whole movie. And instead he kills himself. And so I think, yeah. again, you know, it kind of plays into that, like, you know, this is a guy who's really never dealt with the, you know, trauma he dealt with mm -hmm. that he went through in, uh, you know, his own uh, military experience. Yeah. And you also, we talked a little bit um, before we recorded this about, you know, just throughout the idea, like, maybe we should talk about reflecting skin because it's got like a, you know, a, a, it has yeah, underneath it, true. like yeah. this sort of this um i i think a really sort of uh well done i don't know theme of like nuclear war uh mm -hmm. you know america overstepping their you know just overstepping and, and acting insane um and but i i don't know if part of the reason you wanted to watch the series because it, it i mean it it seems more real like it, this movie actually has a lot of relationship to that movie like soldier coming home yeah acting different um, you know, being distrusted. Uh, I don't know. It's, it's, it kind of makes me wonder if it's sort of this movie. Might, I, I, when I see movies like this, I'm like, this seems like it's inspired a lot of later works, but it's like, no, I don't, I've never heard anybody talk it, talk about it before. It's like one of those weird movies that sits in that zone where yeah. it just feels really influential, but was it like, cause it's like, I just, you know, you would think by now someone be like, yeah, this movie's like fucking, it was like one of the first Vietnam War films. I mean, had you seen someone write that about it before, that it was one of the first, or did you just sort of discover that um, on your own? I don't really, yeah, I, I don't think that was what initially I heard about it. Um, I don't really remember where I had first heard about it. Um, just probably like looking for obscure good horror movies or something. Um but yeah, I mean, as far as the reflecting skin goes, which is another one that's, um, you know, f somewhat obscure, I would say, um, from the 90s or early, late 80s, early 90s. Early 90s, yeah. Okay, yeah. And um, yeah, there, there's definitely a lot of similarities with the, um, yeah, the post-traumatic stress, what we would call that, and um, the decaying uh, things that happen there. Mm -hmm. It's definitely more stylized in the reflecting skin. Yeah. Uh, which is more, yeah, kind of Lynchian too, and has a lot of other things going on in it too. Uh, yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, uh, yeah. What other movies by, um, what's his name? Bob Clark. That the director? Yeah. What, what other movies by him besides, um, black Christmas, um, have you seen or would recommend? Cause I, you know, this is like I have only seen Black Christmas in this one. Um, yeah, um, Children Shouldn't Play with Dead Things, which was his first one. I'd say that's definitely worth checking out. And, and that's a zombie um, comedy. 
film? Yeah, it's kind of hard to explain, and that's partially because it's been a really long time since I've seen it. But yeah, yeah it's um, and it's from the it's from the early seventies. That's wild. So this is like was this like the first like zombie comedy movie? I mean, like this guy seems really um, innovative. Yeah, it probably had to be <laughs> pretty close to it. I would think. Yeah. I mean, it's I'm sure it was meant to in some ways, you know, play on the hype from Night of the Living Dead. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, that's a good one. And uh, there's one called, um, I mean, he kind of went in more of a mainstream, uh, I guess, comedy direction in the 80s. But there's one called Murder by Decree um, that's really good. It's a Sherlock Holmes. Basically, it's Sherlock Holmes investigating the Jack the Ripper murders. And it has a kind of a, it's not exactly a comedy, I guess, but it's um, got kind of a, a, I don't know what to say, like light tone or sort of slightly cartoonish tone that I think is pretty, makes it a fun one for mm-hmm. sure. Um, so yeah, those are the ones. I mean, and I guess a Christmas story if you know people haven't seen that, but you know, yeah. Plays- wow, he's directed a lot of. He's directed Baby Geniuses. Yeah, Baby Super. Geniuses 2. Wow. And yeah. uh, another movie that I've somehow seen of his that's like really obscure is the Loose Cannons with Dan Aykroyd and Gene Hackman. It's like a oh, wow. lethal weapon style um, sort of like buddy comedy. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, wow, okay. Yeah, that's a good pairing. I mean, yeah, uh, Gene Hackman and Dan Aykroyd. Hell yeah. I've not seen that one though. Yeah. We'll have to do another podcast about uh, Nothing But Trouble at some point. Yes. Yeah, yeah, that is... <laughs> That is a bizarre film. <laughs> it's like a Dan. That's like a Dan Aykroyd's. Like uh, I think I was like a labor of love. Like he was like, yeah, he was like, I really want to make the movie about the grotesque <laughs> monsters, penis nose. <laughs> so, do you want to leave anybody with any final thoughts about Death Dream or any other um, movies that uh, you want to throw out there off the top of your head? Like in terms of, you know, that are more politically poignant now like horror movies um well yeah um i don't know if i have a good answer to that but the something that i was thinking about as i was watching these two which are from the same era um you know the early 70s when i think horror was kind of like sort of coming up mm-hmm. i mean obviously horror has existed for a long time but it like this new version of horror i yeah. think was really coming to the fore in a movie that came out around that time was the exorcist which was obviously a much bigger production than either of these yes and much bigger and and i mean it is crazy to think that that movie was seen by like i always think of like my mom or not my mom my um mother-in-law her sister is like the most uh white bread like christian uh catholic lady you know who like wants no unhappy things in the world and, uh, like, you know, she had gone to see that movie when it came out in the theaters. It's, like, sort of mind-blowing that, like, kids were basically going to see this really brutal and pretty fucked-up movie. Yeah. And, um, but one thing I was thinking about it, because I had, um, I had actually just watched part of it late, uh, recently, and um, I'd kind of forgotten that, well, I remember, you know, so it's set in Washington, D.C., which is kind of an unusual place for a horror movie. The story that it's about is actually from St. Louis, where I live. the The original story that uh, Blatty based the um, the novel on happened okay. here, and 
in St. Louis and people in St. Louis love to tell people that. So uh, that didn't really have <laughs> to do with what I was saying. But the question was like, well, why Washington, D.C.? And then, um, you know, I saw the scene where she's um, she's filming a movie and she's in a rented house in Georgetown. And the movie she's filming is like a there's like a campus protest or like a student protest going on. And like she there's like a guy on the microphone and I think he's saying something like burn the place down or something like that. And then she kind of takes the, the megaphone, I mean, and um, like talks the crowd into like, oh, no, you know, don't do that. You know, I know you're unhappy. So it has this it kind of reminded me of this stuff with the the crazies of, um, you know, like crowd control and, you know, the amount of like that this would have been a fresh thing in the news at the time that there were all these campus protests and like, you know, mass protests and burning down like campus facilities and, and that mm -hmm. kind of thing, you know, happened a lot. Like it happened here in St. Louis at colleges that today are like, you know, totally reactionary type of place or not, maybe not reactionary, but you know, would never, the student body would never do that kind of thing. these Of days. course. Yeah. I mean, they and, even, um, Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Oh yeah. Well, anyway, it just kind of made me think like, is there a reading of the exorcist or of movies of this period where the, the real horror that everybody is dealing with is this idea that like, you know, we've unleashed some like great evil with the, the Vietnam war and it's now coming back on us, you know? So mm -hmm. it's like, um, you know, the, the reason that it would, that this evil spirit, which comes from, you know, I mean, the, the epilogue in that movie is like in filmed in Syria, you know, so it oh, has yeah, yeah. primeval thing, mm -hmm. but then it's coming to Washington, DC, you know, the, the seat of, of power of the U S empire, it's called, you know, she knows it as Captain Howdy, which is a very American, like, you know, classic American sounding name and even maybe military. So it's like, um, I don't know. I just got into my head about thinking you could kind of read a lot of these films in the early seventies in this way that it's like the horror and violence of the Vietnam war that the society is not really dealing with is like busting out in the, in these super, you know, increasingly violent and dark horror movies like Texas Chainsaw Massacre is from that same era too, Absolutely, you know, and has a very, you know, just brutal quality about it. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, if you flip ahead to like the Iraq war period is when like the torture porn movies yeah. started coming out. And, you know, at the, the same time that the U S military and CIA were literally torturing people, mm -hmm. um, around the globe. So, I mean, you know, it's interesting. I don't know, you know, like the intentions of the filmmakers may not necessarily be like, I'm making a commentary on the Vietnam war with the exorcist or, you know, the Saw movie is maybe not directly about Guantanamo, but it does feel like it speaks to some like, you know, burbling underneath. Um, Absolutely. In society. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's really interesting because like just the fact that I don't know, like, I, I mean, one thing that came to mind uh, while watching this movie and while we're talking is like you get these like what you're saying is probably very true. Like even just the genre of like horror itself becoming like this genre in the seventies, you know, it existed mm -hmm. before, but it didn't really become the genre that it was in the seventies Yeah, was just sort of a, you know, it was almost like an expression of this sort of, um, you know, this horrifying scenario in a lot of ways. And, 
And a lot of that violence, I feel like, I don't know how much more Americans were exposed to like footage of like dead civilians in Vietnam or things like that. But like they were exposed to like troops coming home, like with severe injuries, you know, a lot more than we've ever experienced in like our generation. And that in of itself is like pretty horrifying, you know, to witness. And in the crazies, there's the scene where the priest sets himself on fire. Exactly, which yeah. Is obviously, an allusion to the um, you know Tibetan monks. Oh my god, Buddhist monks. Yeah. To, um, protesting the war. Mm-hmm. So yeah. Yeah, and but it's I, I guess the point I was making was that there are these movies that allude to. I mean, even this movie alludes to the horrors of the Vietnam War, but there are very little movies or. Uh, even today, like made about any wars that like make not just like speak to the horrors of war, but that are like also horror movies in and of themselves. Like, yeah. And I find that really interesting. And and maybe that's just because it'd be really hard to get, you know, film something realistically. But at the same time, I don't, I don't know if just the subject is too sensitive. I mean, something like making an actual torture porn movie in the early 2000s that would, you know, took place in like an Iraqi prison ran by American soldiers, like would have been really, I would think would be like really uh, uh, poignant. And like, yeah, I mean, totally. What I'm, what I'm saying is instead of making something metaphorical or channeling some kind of suppressed, you know, violence that we're being shielded from, you know, thousands of miles away, why do you think there aren't more movies that take the opportunity to be like, wow, like, why don't we actually just make a movie about this situation happening right now? That's like, um, and then even heighten it even more. Like, you know, um, I mean, what are your thoughts on that? I mean, I think a lot of it is probably the, you know, this, the studio, well, for sure in the Hollywood studio system. I mean, I just can't imagine that they're ever going to really do something. They just don't want, that kind of controversy, I don't think, and mm-hmm. never really have. And so they're not going to really take on the, the horror of something directly like that. But with Vietnam, I mean, at least they started two years after the war. I mean, you started to get the deer hunter, which is kind of plays at both sides because a lot of the atrocities in the deer hunter are actually committed by the Viet Cong instead of by yeah. the, the Americans, but they, you know, in the eighties, you did start to get the idea that like Americans were committing atrocities. Platoon is, mm-hmm. you know, about that, um, full metal jacket casualties of war, the Brian De Palma movie. Is that the one with, um, Sean Penn, Michael G. Fox? Yeah. 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 They do like kind of a Milai type of like, um, burning down a village type mm-hmm. thing. And they rape a, a civilian, a woman, you know, and, Basically, take but, on like a sex slave. I remember that was like yeah. very in, intense. It was like maybe it one is, of the first yeah. Vietnam War movies I ever saw, actually. Oh, yeah. It's, yeah, it's definitely pretty intense. But it, I mean, that one kind of plays it both ways, too, where it's like the narrative of it is like, well, the good soldier blew the whistle and, mm-hmm. you know, there was a kind of a justice system there. So, um, but yeah, I mean, as far as like, uh, there hasn't been anything really Iraq war related that wasn't just kind of a, a very vanilla, like, you know, the troops did something really difficult and, you know, Mm -hmm. very, I don't know, like veteran focused. um, Except for Brian De Palma, which. Yeah, that's true. But I don't know. Have you seen that movie? I have not seen it. Uh, Redacted. Yeah. I Uh, I never saw it. And I mean, the 
buzz around it was really bad, but um, I mean, De Palma is always interesting, so I can't imagine it's not at least worth, you know. And yeah, but I mean, you know, he went out on a limb with it and got not, you know, knocked down basically. Mm -hmm. So, from what I understand, it's a found footage style movie too. Like, oh, so I I don't know. Yeah, maybe it's all. Maybe it just happens to be a bad movie that people panned it for good reasons, or maybe it just like got panned. You know. Yeah, it was so it too controversial, or raw. Yeah, because I think it was about Haditha. I think it, I, from what I remember, like it was, it was like actually about that incident. That yeah, just happened. I should, like, that's definitely one I should, yeah, check out. And um, well, Paul Schrader, the um, the card counter, deals with um, torture pretty directly. Um, when did that come out? Just last year. Oh, okay. Yeah, I like Paul Schrader. But it's not a horror movie. I mean, yeah. it's like a, you know, drama. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I mean, I just, I think there's not a lot of, I guess there's just not a lot of appetite from the filmmaker's side. I mean, I don't know, you know, they probably would say like, oh, well, audiences don't want to see that stuff, but I don't know. They never try it. So how do you know what the audiences actually want to see? Yeah, I mean, well, it makes... You do something like that that's really powerful and effective people will want to see it i mean even just what you mentioned about how there were quite a lot of vietnam war movies made not that long after the war that portrayed atrocities yeah. by american soldiers like i can't even think of any um movies except for maybe redacted but you know i don't know what's exactly portrayed in that but it does seem like very sanitized compared to even that era of hollywood which yeah. seemed to be you know plenty fine with doing that maybe you know, maybe because it was people felt so much more personally impacted by it or something, and a lot of people knew veterans personally. I don't really know. I mean, that's like, yeah. But I also think that there's probably a lot more military involvement in movies these days. Definitely, um, yeah. Especially if you're working on the budget of needing to make a movie that portrays like something like the Iraq War. I mean, you need you kind of need to have uh, access to uh, at least some equipment. You know, that's like probably harder it probably gets harder and harder to actually like rent this stuff from just some kind of like hollywood prop house or you know place that has decommissioned military vehicles although i know yeah. they do that a lot in movies but i don't um, know yeah well they yeah they seem to sell all the decommissioned vehicles now to local police departments right oh, yeah so yeah it's like there's not but yeah i mean i think basically if you want to do if you want to include any actual military official you know, um, equipment. Yeah. It does seem like you, they're, they force them to play ball with the Pentagon and the mm -hmm. Pentagon gets, um, script edit, you know, a uh, script editing type of, uh, uh, rights over it when they do that. So I'm sure they, you know, they would never green light a movie directly about like, yeah, uh, <laughs> military atrocities or whatever. Yeah. It would have to be, I think it would have to be a really low key, um, smartly written, low-budget movie that's got, like, one set, you know, almost like someone, like, being tortured in an interrogation room or something. Like, to be, yeah. To, then I mean, then you can make a very low-budget. Um, but, yeah, it's... it's it, I guess I've always been just, like, waiting for someone to make a truly, you know, kind of almost... Even just platoon-level movie about Afghanistan or Iraq, and it's just mm -hmm. never happened. Um, no, instead we get, like, 12 strong which is about like 
mm-hmm. how you know the uh, they the military went in with the Northern Alliance and the CIA and yeah you know started the war real 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 good and, was yeah, that Michael Bay? Depressing. No, uh, oh, he, did, he the, did that 13 hours, the yeah. uh, Benghazi uh, movie about how, you know, they told them all to stand down or whatever and all the, mm-hmm. and that's why everybody died or four people died. Um, but no, 12 strong, it was not even as big. It was like um, a few years ago and it was just, I mean, just total propaganda type of movie about, Oh, we rode some horses with the Northern Alliance and Holy you know fought shit. the bad guys and yeah, it's just it's so disgusting that that's you know like almost twenty years after the war started, that's the kind of movie they're still giving you, you know. Yeah, I mean, even I remember when the Hurt Locker was getting all these accolades, and a lot of people yeah. I knew even really liked it, and I and I remember having this really long argument with some guy at a party where we just debated all night and. He was adamant that there was no war propaganda whatsoever in the Hurt Locker. <laughs> yeah. And that as someone who was anti-war, I should be completely on board with it and even like embrace it and promote it. And I was like, and I just mentioned, I just went down a laundry list of things about it, like the romanticization of PTSD, sort of like, mm-hmm. you know, this, like even Deer Hunter has, a, I'd say a little bit of that in it where it's like, yeah. you know, it's, it's sort of romanticized the, idea that that was even something that you know how heroic and self-sacrificing um these u.s soldiers were like this guy would go out in a bomb proof suit and defuse ieds i mean i, I think that probably bear if that happened at all in iraq war it barely happened like they would just like yeah. blow up an ied with a fucking like rpg they wouldn't care who like got killed around it you know like it just the whole thing is like it's just the whole thing is framed in this I don't know, like, it's like, oh, it's so extreme and, you know, all these people are, like, swearing and stuff in it. But ultimately yeah. there's, it is, like, a basically it's like a pro-America, um, you know, romanticizing the war. There's nothing critical yeah. about it. Well, um, and, yeah, and I think you were proven right given that, you know, the next movie, Catherine. Exactly, yeah, I was. Made with Zero Dark Thirty. And, <laughs> and there were, you know, that's, because um, I, I think you mentioned I write film reviews, um here and there. And so I guess, you know, in some vague sense, I'm part of the film critic community and I always get super depressed when things like that were getting praised and defended by, you know, people who I otherwise think are good critics and like, they just cannot, like, there's this just some little level of ambiguity in there. Like, you know, it's not full on like rah, rah, wave the flag kind of uh, vibe to it. And so they'll just like, suck that in and ignore you know what a far for one the story is not even true i'm sure as we've you know learned like the seymour hirsch article kind of gives the lie to that and i doubt even that's the full truth but um you know just the idea that like that torture would in, it was in any way leading to like osama bin laden being captured and all this stuff it was just a really depressing for me to see people who are more like you know, film people um, really buying into it, you know, because mm-hmm. I, I do think, you know, good critics can really see through that kind of thing sometimes. But with that movie in particular, it just seemed to like fry some people's senses. It kind of embodied this like liberal Obama era mentality yes. in a way. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> it, it just seems it captured it so perfectly, even more so I'd say than Zero Dark Thirty, which is almost like, 
in retrospect, almost seems like more hawkish or more egregious than the Ob- than Obama himself like acted or you know his his uh, orations like he mm-hmm. seemed more measured or whatever like that movie almost seems more like a Bush era kind of a thing but with like a you know a sheen from the Obama era produ- you know production values wise yeah and uh, the yeah the kind of liberal CIA idea mm-hmm. is very much there yeah also it, it is interesting that Catherine Bigelow's like whole style of filmmaking um I think kind of really shifted or was almost like inspired by another movie, which I think is like, you know, was very much based on American propaganda, um, United 93 by Paul Greengrass. Yeah. It seemed like her style took a heavy influence from his sort of like shaky cam, um, you know, like, I, I mean, her earlier movies kind of felt a little bit like that, but they just, just seems like a completely different era. But, the only reason yeah. I mentioned her or even went off on this is because I wanted to circle back to just giving a slight mention at the end of this Halloween episode, Media Roots Radio, to uh, another interesting vampire film that, like the film Martin by George Romero, which is a pretty overlooked vampire movie, yeah. um, Catherine Bigelow's first film uh, called Near Dark, mm-hmm. um, starring Lance Henriksen and, and um, Bill Paxton, is kind of plays with a similar theme. It's like, what if vampires were these like homeless guys who all live in a van together and just seem like miserable and, you know, it, it's an interesting movie. It's got a great score. It's not mm-hmm. a perfect movie by any means, but like if you like vampire movies or like 80s horror, um, definitely check it out. Yeah, it's definitely got a cool vibe, like, uh, you know, the sort of like wild west <laughs> like a new neo western with totally. vampires kind of thing and like from dust till dawn i think kind of took that mm-hmm. in uh i mean a different direction but mm-hmm. probably inspired by near dark a little bit yeah i mean there's so many we'll have to dive a little deeper um after we we're done recording this to see what other like obscure political horror movies we've we haven't seen because there's got to be some other ones out there. I mean, yeah, I'm sure like, you know, even with the Iraq and Afghanistan war, uh, I don't know, there's got to be something that's just like super, super low budget. Maybe it's terrible, but just yeah. something that I mean, there least... is the Blair Witch people made, or the guy made a Afghanistan horror movie. It's like a ghost movie almost. Oh, did he? Yeah, um, it's, I wouldn't say it's good, but it's oh. interesting. It's. Okay. Yeah, it's like it's basically like soldiers stranded in Afghanistan being haunted, and they're outdoors the whole time. So it's it's yeah. Okay. Yeah, that missed me. Yeah. So that sounds interesting. So anyway, I mean, I don't even. I wish I knew the title of it, but um, but thank you, Gumby, for coming on today. Um, and uh, we'll have to do this again. Um, but I definitely want to have you on again in the future to like talk more. We'll get we'll get more into the meat about things like the Larouche pack. And um, another yeah. another happenings. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, that sounds uh, like a good time. <laughs> yeah, so if if you aren't already, make sure to follow Gumby for Christ, uh, the new, the numeral for Gumby for Christ um, at Twitter, um, and that's where you post most of your like research and and your um, and, and stuff, right? Do you do you have yeah. anywhere else you post stuff right now, or is it mostly Twitter? No, I mean I keep thinking that I should, but also I don't have a lot of time to actually write anything. So hopefully sometime in the future, I'll 
actually make a blog or something like that. But for now, it's just uh, random stuff on Twitter. But it's great stuff. I mean, you, your threads um, are amazing. And uh, yeah, and you also were a big help um, last year during the 20th anniversary of the anthrax attacks. And uh, yeah, there's just so much more to talk about. So we'll, we'll have to continue the conversation later. But thank you. Yeah, thanks for having me.